VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, October the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning. Of course we are. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as you've heard, Ben Murphy and Brian Medora say, more growlers action tonight at the Mary Brown Center. Puck drop at 7. First-time visitors, the South Carolina Stingrays. Looking for some growler action myself. All right, and you also heard Mr. Medora say in the VOCM newscast, you know, mention the fact that Dawson Mercer held off the score sheet again. That's every game this year. I mean, coming off a banner year last year, and I'm not trying to kick him when he's down because I'm a huge fan of Dawson. So, six games played, very few shots. He's minus two, zero goals, zero assists, zero points. Compare that to the fact that he's the New Jersey Devils Ironman. He's played in every single regular season game since he made his debut. In his career, 170 games, 44 goals, 54 assists for 98 points, and off to an especially sluggish start this year, but hopefully he turns that around. All right, let's give some kudos and some shout-outs to some members of the Memorial Seahawk women's soccer team. Right off the bat, a player for Cape Breton named Aliyah Rowe. She's the AUS MVP for the second consecutive season. She lit it up this year. Led the conference and the nation in goals, scored 25 this season, setting a new record for the conference. She also set a new conference record for goals in a single game. She had two six-goal games this year. 25 goals, led the conference, led the country. But the big story here in this province is Memorial University's Zoe Rowe from Concession Bay South. She's the recipient of the 2023 AUS Student Athlete Community Service Award. So, had a terrific season. She's a first-team All-Star, and inside the world of this particular prestige is not for her. So she had nine goals, 11 points. She's not only on the first team All-Star, but let's see if I got some here. So she's a three-time academic All-Canadian with a 4.0 GPA, recipient of the Colburn Family Scholarship, volunteers in large part across the entirety of the community. She's tried the lead coach of the Star Development Program. I mean, what a year for Zoe. It's the second straight time a Memorial University student has been the recipient of that award. Last time out, it was Kate Hickey. So, also making second team All Star nods this year, Sarah Jones, who's a defender. She's a third year player with the Seahawks. And striker Claire Langille, also a third year player. Congratulations to all hands. And certainly, Zoe Rowe. Terrific stuff. All right. I do appreciate when folks go all out decorating. You know, whether it be Christmas and, yes, Halloween, there's a couple of homes in my neighborhood that, to say the very least, they have gone all out. And bravo to whoever's behind the House of Horrors on Main Street in Quarterbrook. Watched a great story last night. They have taken it to another level. A couple of stories in an old industrial building on Main Street, some 20 or 22 uh, different exhibits in different rooms. So that has really put in massive efforts of bravo to them. Okay. So, again, you heard Brian talk about it in the newscast. I read the story. I'll admit I'm still a little tiny bit confused. With the new assessment model that's going to be implemented next March in 2024 regarding the strength of the northern cod stock. It's been in the critical zone since 1991 and the moratorium. But they are changing the way that they're measuring it. Okay, so they used the old model used data beginning in 1983. Now they're going all the way back to 1954. So there's a lot of changes into how they're going to assess a bit more of a historical perspective. One thing, though, it doesn't put any more cod in the water. So now there's the likelihood that since 2016, the northern cod stock has been in the cautious zone. 
not the critical zone. Of course, harvesters, the FFAW, enterprise owners, they'll be, I think, pleased with this new assessment model. DFO has had a devil of a time trying to even compile the science over the last number of years on a variety of species. So now apparently there's a 71% that the, uh, the stock is in the cautious zone versus the fact, using the old model, it indicated there was a 99% chance the stock was in the critical zone. So a real flip-flop here in how they're going to assess the stock. What this is going to mean? I would imagine, given what the science now says, you're going to see an increase in the total allowable catch. Given what the harvesters themselves are reporting, that there's tons of cod around, and they're big as dogs, so catch rates have been really impressive. So now what the anecdotal evidence looks like is now mirrored much more akin to what the science is now saying. What it doesn't indicate, though, is there's no more cuts, no more cod out there. It's just whether or not we've been assessing it with an appropriate historical view versus the more limited view of 1983 versus 1954. So we've been told for a number of years that there's a lot of cod out there, but, you know, it's still proceeding so that we don't mimic what happened leading up to the moratorium in 1991. I mean, it's not my enterprise, of course, so it's easy enough for me to say. But we know the inputs that caused the devastation of the stock and the moratorium, but no longer in the critical zone, apparently. So I guess that's good news. All right. Another interest. Sometimes some of these reports are real head scratchers. This is coming from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, and it's called Measuring Matters. They're looking at the landscape across the country regarding $10 a day daycare. All right. It comes across as a very glowing review. Now, thankfully, the province has opened up a new portal, though, for families who are in demand, in need of daycare and early childhood education, so we get a better idea of the demand and whether or not we're keeping up with the pace required. So we know that there's been billions of dollars, $30 billion over the course of five years from the federal government. That was announced back in April of 2021. The report card speaks very glowingly of the province. So we have hit our target of of $10 a day well before the 2026 target date. Okay. So the report looks at all different uh, three categories of children. So what they say is they classify children under 18 months or two years of age as infants, 18 months to three years of age as toddlers, children ages three to five who are not yet in kindergarten as preschoolers. Okay. Fair enough to break it down. But the issue is still very, very real. It's fine. In fact, it's excellent for families to be able to secure an early childhood education, child care spot at $10 per day, and there's massive upside to it. I don't have kids that young, so it's not necessarily intended for me, but I think we all benefit from it. I know some people think I'm correct on that front, but I'm sticking with it. The problem is 10 bucks a day is fine, but if you can't get a space, it's meaningless. So when we have uh, families contact me saying that every time I bring it up, I'll get inevitably a few notes and hopefully a couple of phone calls on it. It's fine to say we've hit that target. But imagine if you're pregnant in your first or second trimester, have just barely uh, had time to announce to your friends and family that you're pregnant and you're already on a wait list. And families that are out there now have been on wait list for extended amounts of time. And what that means for some, I mean, just think about what everything costs. To have to decide if someone has to potentially quit their job and take an extended leave and the financial pressure that puts on the family because they can't find a spot for their child who is a preschooler or a toddler or an infant, but okay, gives us a good scorecard, but I think it only paints half of the picture. What do you think? Let's talk about that. And these numbers are absolutely devastating. The country has had a pretty significant reliance on food banks for decades. 
What was once a one-time backstop has now become a go-to for millions of Canadians who fully rely on food banks. Here's some of the numbers. And this is just for March. In Newfoundland and Labrador, 62 food banks provided the data for the study. In all, there was 15,425 visits made to the province's food bank, so some 25,000 meals and snacks. That's a 12.4% increase from March 2022, a 44% increase since March of 2019. Food Banks Canada has been tracking these numbers since 1989, and the usage is at its highest levels ever, nationally. Okay, let's see here. Two million people in the country use food banks in March of 2023. That's up 32% from the same month last year, which, of course, is yet another record. It's more than 78% higher than it was in March of 2019. We know what the cost of living has meant and what we're seeing, like doubling of usage at Memorial University's food bank. And people who used to be donors, repeated and reliable donors to the food banks, are now using the food banks. Here's where the numbers break down a little further. 10% of the province's food bank users are seniors. That's the highest proportion in the country. Even scarier, the children using food banks. More than one-third of visits to the food banks, 5,305 were children. That's one-third, but children only represent 20% of the population. And yes, it's not just people that are on social assistance. 65% of the food bank users are indeed on social assistance as the primary source of income, but plenty of working folks. Plenty of the so-called and the actual working poor. So between the children numbers and the seniors numbers, it's pretty big stuff. So half the people are single. Single parent families make up 22.6%. Uh, 6.5, pardon me, 5 points. No, that's, sorry, start again. 12% of the province's food banks users are pensioners. Making ends meet, I mean, you know the deal. People in and around your social circles who are low income or whatever middle income or whatever middle class means these days is hard to know. It's a shrinking class of citizens. But the food bank numbers, absolutely extraordinarily up. And if you look at that number, 65% are on social assistance as the primary source of income. The fact of the matter is social assistance does not jive with the cost of living. Now... There has been a new program that's going to be expanded province-wide, the Employment Stabilization Plan, for folks who are on social assistance to receive a leg up, financially and otherwise, to enter or re-enter the job with the workforce. Let's hope that it's as successful around the province as it has been here in this area. So 170 people uh, signed up for it. 40, just a year later, 40 are no longer on social assistance. That's a program that can and should and does work. So to see that expanded would be, and to see the success rate even tip up, tick up a little further, would be terrific. In the same vein, I mean, we all know the issue regarding housing and emergency shelters. But again, like food banks and emergency shelters should be stopgap measures for just the rarest of circumstances, not the go-to. I still have a hard time understanding the housing issue necessarily. So I suppose the big housing crunch, certainly on the Northeast Avalon, is because we've seen the population of more rural parts of the province have gone down. And consequently, population base in this area has gone way up. And of course, supply, demand, and you know what was once multi-generational households, which I grew up in, you know, nanny lived with us. Now we have so many people that were living alone, and now the trend has gone back to the multi-generational household simply based on cost and or the vacancy rate. So, if in the shelter world, like the story I read this morning is ridiculous. If we spend $10.5 million per year on emergency shelters, half of which goes to the for-profit operators of these emergency shelters, Then the story of this one lady who was in a tent across from the Confederation building was given a transition spot in an emergency shelter before a more permanent option could be found. 
the problem is the place was disgusting. So upon the media being made aware, and it shouldn't take the media shining a spotlight on these issues for things like inspections and cleanliness to be attended to. I mean, how do we refocus that money? And you know, you heard this story last week where the province was touting or boasting the fact that 750 houses or homes or units had been built. Now that definition has trans, uh, transferred to housing options. The number is not 750. No, it's 11. So the actual plan and to refocus the monies we spend on things like shelters and hotel rooms. And yes, it would be nice to know exactly how many hotel rooms are being paid for by the government that are actually vacant. That's a story. And it's hard to come up with the firm number, but what is actually going on here? And where is the actual plan? Again, you might be sick of hearing it, but a house used to be just part of exactly that, a place to lay your head in, out of the elements. Now, housing is a massive part of GDP. It's the equity piece that the government relies on. It's one of the economic measures of housing starts, as opposed to, do people actually have a place to live? And yes, there's lots to it, and people can say you gotta, you know, get out there and do your level best and work for a living, and of course you do. And we've got to encourage and do whatever is required to ensure that that's the case. But you can be working and not able to afford rent. You can be working and going to a food bank. So the juxtaposition and the the growing gap between the haves and the have-nots, and, and again, you know, we'll hear once the campaigns are called, and apparently the premier of the province says there will be an election before Christmas, but they'll all be looking for the so-called middle-class vote. The power of purchasing for my dollar as a middle-class Canadian is really severely diminished. And who is the middle-class anymore? I mean, I just don't even know. I used to be pretty cocksure that I was in the middle-class, and then I suppose I am, but holy macaroni, who knows what's going on there. All right. Virtual care. Virtual care is coming. You know, for certain parts of the province, they think that the move quickly towards virtual care, which could be extremely helpful, of course, and it absolutely plays a role in the healthcare delivery model, people will try to make it akin, and fair enough, that virtual care as opposed to a doctor or a primary care clinic or a collaborative care clinic or an emergency room where you live to be replaced by virtual care is sort of what people might think is writing on the wall. You know, the relationship made between that and the banks leaving, and we can talk about that again today, and that issue is bigger than simply a bank and a place to do your financial transactions, right? So the virtual care. What we don't know, they're going to open it up in New West Valley to begin with and focus in on uh, folks that and the regions that have the most dire need. Good enough. What we don't know is fair enough for people not to have to pay for the service, nor should they. But again, there's a private company being brought in here. The rumors and rumbles in the industry is an American-based provider with an office in Toronto. They'll provide the physicians and the nurse practitioners, which is good because we just don't have the human resources to put into these types of affairs. Now, there's lots of virtual care owned and operated by Newfoundland and Labrador-based companies. But who are they? How much are we paying them? What does that look like in the long run? How many more people will that satisfy? You know, there's some eligibility requirements that you have to meet to be eligible for this virtual care. Let's see if I can read those out just to get all the deeds. People who are registered with Patient Connect NL, and that's a full list of individuals who have self-identified as being without a primary care provider. They'll also have access in the early stages. 24-7 virtual physician coverage. All good, but it'd be also nice to know how much. What do you think? Good morning, Keith Fitzpatrick, friend of the show, up in Lab West. We know that construction had started years ago on a six-bed unit for a mental health facility in Happy Valley Goose Bay. For starters, it remains unopened as they tried to deal with the staffing challenges, 
But you just wonder, wonder whether or not six beds is even remotely close. Like there's no detox facility up in Labrador West. There is very limited mental health resources. We know the commitment is to spend 9% of the healthcare budget on mental health. Doesn't look like that's been satisfied. But a six bed unit, it's all bad enough that it's not opened yet. And I get staffing challenges are very real. And there's lots of issues as to why that has become more difficult this day and age, especially more remote parts of the country. But six beds? Keith, if you're listening, you want to chime in. I read a story where you're quoted wide and far, and he's absolutely right. Six beds. He figures he can walk out the front door of his home and have six people who could fill those beds before he gets to the corner. So anyway, we won't take it on. Let's go. A couple of quick ones. You know, as a parent and when you're pregnant, the hope that you have, like some people say, well, I hope it's a boy, I hope it's a girl. But we all share the exact same hope that we hope that their children are healthy, Right primary concern and I'm sure there's lots of sleepless nights that were entertained by me and probably everybody out there who's now a parent the citizens rep Bradley Moss has a new report out there titled by a threat talking about the uncertainty the stress the mental anguish and yes the financial toll that it takes on people who are trying to help their severely ill children the story's almost too sad to talk about but it's part of what we need to discuss So Mr. Moss says there's distinct shortcomings, and he has a couple of recommendations inside the 12, a couple of which he thinks will make the biggest impact. I'll get to that particular page. But can you just imagine the amount of money? One family saying, you know, costs $35,000 out of pocket for the type of care that their child really does need. So he's got the 12 recommendations. Dave, we should really get Mr. Moss on the show here to break it down a little further. He says the problem is going to be even worse in the coming years. Given the aging demographic, given the age of the parents that are trying to help their severely ill children but that report is absolutely devastating because every time I think about those particular issues you know I thank my lucky stars that my boys are God, they're happy and healthy and anyway let's see if we can get Mr. Moss on not directly related but maybe the use of medical assistance in dying I, mean, I bring it up every now and then but it's time to reach out to your member of parliament to voice your concerns if you have any when it was first a discussion For people who have a dire prognosis, the end is near, the pain is insufferable, and there is no hope. Maybe through consultation with your doctor, medical assistance in dying could absolutely be what some Canadians absolutely need and want. But it's not being used the way it's intended. So just for context for some numbers, in 2022, there was 13,241 medical assistance, uh, assistance in death instances. That's up 31.2% from 2021. Now the conversation is about including folks whose lone ailment is a mental health-related matter. This is a problem. This is 100% a problem. It is not supposed to be a go-to tool. We've heard stories from Canadians that they just needed some additional support in their own home so that they wouldn't have to consider medical assistance in dying. We've heard stories of Canadian Armed Forces veterans going in looking for help to be told that MAID is an option. And now the expansion to cover mental illness, this is a problem. I understand how some people will think there's no hope in sight. It's crushing me 
financially, emotionally, physically, and my family. So I'll talk with my doctor, and maybe, just maybe, that's for me. But the way it's being used in the country is out of control. It's time to rein this in. And please pump the brakes on the issue regarding mental, mental illness. If you have any concerns, the only avenue we have, and whether or not it falls on deaf ears remains to be seen, but your member of parliament should be told in no uncertain terms where you stand on such an important issue because at this point, from where I sit, it's out of control. I don't know what you think. And if you want to talk about the AG's report, we're waiting to hear from uh, the Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan. Hopefully that's time for us this morning. A couple of pleasant ones before we go. Congratulations to wildlife biologist Holly Hogan. She was on this program not so long ago talking about plastics in the oceans. She's a finalist for the Governor General's Literary Awards for her book, Message in a Bottle, about, of course, ocean plastics and the risk it poses to marine wildlife and to us. So congratulations to Holly for that. And open up this afternoon at the Village Mall as VO Sim Cares Coats for Kids pop-up as of 1 p.m. today down in the basement of the Village Mall itself. So bravo, our VO Sim Cares team. They're just uh, up the hallway a little bit, doing terrific work, helping a ton of families. They want to thank their partners, Newfoundland Power, Woodward Motors, the Village Shopping Center, Deluxe Dry Cleaners, and all the volunteers for the Coats for Kids campaign. So if you're in need, this afternoon at 1 p.m. at the Village Mall, cats, uh, cats, coats, hats, mittens, boots, youth and adults. Okay. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you join us live on the program, just like Mayor Mike Tiller out of New West Valley. He's going to kick it off right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board. Line number one, say good morning to the Mayor of New West Valley. That's Mike Tiller. Good morning, Mayor Tiller. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad this morning. Thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Just got into the capital city. Actually, I'm here for the M&L convention. Terrific. Welcome. Uh, just making a comment on the, I know you were talking about virtual care earlier, and I uh, just wanted to comment uh, how huge an announcement it is for our region. Uh, it's, you know, having our hospital open 24-7 is something that, you know, I've been fighting for for a long time. And to hear the minister actually come out and to at least have virtual 24-7, it's a it's a huge, huge bonus for for our hospital in our region not to have to worry about the diversions of having to go to James Payton. I would imagine. You know, there's, as I've said many times, change is the only constant, and virtual care will be the go-to, not the sole offering, but it will be one of the primary offerings for many parts of the province. Folks will need to, I suppose, get used to the fact that this is where we're headed, because that's where we are headed. You know, people get used to going to the doctor, seeing the white coat, face-to-face interaction, which is, of course, the best, but this is a, certainly a great backstop for most of what we go to the family doctors for, so I think it's good news, too, but I'm sure many people will be bemoaning the fact that they don't have a clinic where they can walk in and speak and shake the hand of the doctor that they're visiting. So I get it, but I think it's good news. I think that they, they'll bemoan the fact that if they had to drive an hour and a half, I think they would take virtual any day over that hour and a half drive. If not, well, you, you can't please them regardless. Fair enough. And, you know, it's going to be expanded. New West Valley is going to be the first place, uh, apparently in the next three or four weeks, to be another, and then another three or four weeks. We're going to see up, as, up to as many as four sites that will be getting this 24-7 virtual care. So it's something that was needed. It, it, and to me, it also uh, reemphasizes the fact that we've been saying for years that our region is viable. I mean, we we uh, we got government money for water treatment plant. Now we see the government put the emphasis on making New West Valley the first place. It it shows that the hard work that we're doing as a council and as our region and as citizens to try and grow our community, it, it's paying off because government realizes that we are an viable option. We are a, a big, vibrant region, and you know it's it, it's really good for for municipal 
uh, councillors and for the employees of our town and the region to know that we are fighting for, for the betterment. What makes the region vibrant and growing? What's happening? Well, again, we, we're seeing more movement in from people that have no connection to our town, but for some reason they want to move in. Uh, the fishery is... is you know, with the recent announcement, the cod stocks are growing. They're out of the, the critical zone. The fact that our plant is, is working for eight or ten months of the year, there are jobs in that fish plant still for anybody that want to move in. There is a place for them to work. And there's a lot of people that live in our region that are, are going back and forth to work. They're going to Argentia. They're going to Alberta. They're going to Voices Bay. And they feel that they're, this area is a good place for them to raise our youngs, raise their kids in. And that's the good news. You know, there's going to have to be a pretty monumental effort, and it's always been the case, but I think even more so in the recent past, for municipal leaders like yourself and other community leaders, unelected folks, to try to figure out what's going to work. And it's going to take a big effort to see regions like yours remain viable, remain uh, growing and vibrant and employment opportunities. So good on you. You know, not everyone has a Z to Cobb, but everyone can mimic the Shorefast Foundation, for instance, because there are things people can do to see their communities have a long fruitful uh, fruitful future not every community will continue on you know it's based on uh, employment opportunities the age of the folks there access to amenities and services but good for you folks if you are bullish the way you're talking about new west valley this morning terrific we're we're, we're very lucky too patty and, and i'll knock on move when i say this that we're not on the list of places that had their scotia bank closed so so far so good on that front it may be coming in the future we have had emails from the uh, leaders of Scotiabank saying that we haven't been on that list. Uh, we're also, as I'm into the M&L with the affordable housing, we have a beautiful chunk of land that uh, we're trying to get in uh, the town to own. We need ministerial approval for the town to take over that land. And the first thing we want to do is put affordable housing on it. If there's a niche for affordable housing and we can put up these, these homes for people, it doesn't matter if they're from our region or not. If we can provide a home for somebody that needs one, well, it's a bon- it's a win-win for everybody. What's the housing crunch look like in your area? I must say, uh, there there isn't any. We we do have a contractor that's planning on putting up some seniors units. Uh, we have been talking to a contractor from St. John's who is looking at a couple areas. And once we get the land out our way, uh, in our name, hopefully we can get it. We're going to be putting an RFE for that to get developed. But there are houses that are going on the market, like I said, Patty, then, and people that have no connection to our town are scooping up these houses as they go up for sale because, unfortunately, right now we don't have seniors' housing. So as these seniors are moving on to uh, to cottages in, in, in other communities, in, in, in neighboring communities, which is still good because they're still taking advantage of our, of our bank and of our grocery store. And if the, the communities that are around us are vibrant, it's only going to help bus grow but uh, not to ramble but as those people are moving out those seniors there are people buying their houses so it's it's good it's wonderful you know, there's a lot of reasons why the housing crunch is the way it is, and I'm sure it's different where I live versus uh, in different parts of the province. But, you know, whether it be vacancy rents and or you're locked into a mortgage, then, of course, getting into a new one is going to be more expensive. So maybe you're not going to sell because of that. Maybe you're not going to move out because simply the cost of living. So the churn from people moving from a home to a rental or a condo or long-term care or whatever, it's slowed down dramatically. And consequently, the vacancy rates and the costs associated with it are unbelievable. Well, we're seeing people that are selling their homes on the mainland where the market is is huge right now. They're selling their homes for a million dollars, and they can come to New West Valley or to an area in rural Newfoundland and buy a home for, for two or $300,000. You know, that's a nice chunk of change left in their pocket. 
you got that right. This was a few years ago now, but a friend of mine who I lived and worked with in Jasper, he and his then-girlfriend, they moved to Vancouver. Got married, both had good jobs, university educated. They bought a home, and I think the story goes something along the lines of they bought a home for maybe $750,000. They lived there until I think it was 2018 where they sold their home for $5 million. Moved back here, retired at my age, and, I mean, talk about equity. And that's, you know, that's a real great story, except that housing, as I mentioned frequently, this is going to take a, a change in how we think about housing federally and provincially. It's no longer simply about GDP and an economic measure. It's about where people live. And, and for, for, you know, we, we've been, uh, incorporated a company, Yolo Nomads, who are specializing in bringing people to Atlantic Canada. And, you know, when people want to retire from these big cities, they don't usually want to live in these big cities. And if we can convince them that New West Valley or, or another town in our region is, is a viable place for them to live, bring them on. I mean, we'll take, we'll take you. And we'll do our best to make you feel at home. And even folks who haven't reached their seniors' age, because, you know, the whole concept of remote work is very real and it's not going away. Imagine living in a beautiful part of the province like New West Valley and not having the rental price or the mortgage associated with living and working in Toronto in the tech sector or what have you. You can work anywhere. So we probably should do more to attract people based on that. That's a good point. And, with, with, you know, we do have... Uh the, the Bell Internet and the other options in our area aren't the best, but with Starlink now that's providing excellent options for, for internet, high-speed internet for rural Newfoundland, you can work from your home, have a Starlink in your house, and you can make a real goal of it. 100% you can. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Mayor Teller? Just a quick shout-out to the town staff and the workers and, and the volunteers, the students that came out the other night. We had a haunted house for the first time on our uh, fire department training grounds. We turned the, the whole grounds and the smokehouse into a haunted house. There was a huge turnout. And to all the staff, to the students that volunteered, to the firefighters that were there, a big bouquet to you and a shout-out to everybody that came and made our haunted house a success. Terrific stuff. Yeah, I gave a shout-out to the uh, House of Horrors on Main Street and Corner, but good on people who do that because that's, you know, it's a part of the community. We can talk about all the problems and that kind of dominates conversations, but a little bit of relief and a mental break and something to do and get a fright or a smile or a scare and a smile, you know, whatever it takes. But anyway, good on whoever is behind that in your area. Thank you, Patty, for the time. Enjoy the conference. I will, sir. We'll talk to you again. Sounds good. Talk soon. Thanks, Mayor. That's Mayor Mike Tiller out in the community of New West Valley. And Dave Williams has told me that the province's Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan, will be joining us in a half hour or so. So if you'd like to pepper some questions via me, through me, to, uh, to pose, pardon me, to Ms. Hanrahan, we'll do exactly that. Maybe you can do it live on the phone here this morning. If you're in the St. John's metro region, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free log distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go to source before you get on the go. 5 30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Uh, I was asked why we didn't talk about the price of gas. Okay. Price of gas up 4.3 cents a litre overnight, of course, brought forward by the Public Utilities Board. Curiously, only province in the country that I saw the price of gas go up. Every other province has seen the price of gas go down. So some of the lingering concerns or questions, people can talk about carbon tax, and we're happy to talk about that on the show. You know, and it's that $0.05 cents distribution that gets paid to Silver Peak. You know, that whole 
issue is, you know, it must be nice to see the government step in and help fund some of the costs associated with the fact that you're distributing, importing and distributing fuel in the province. So people will always talk about that five cents, and they're not wrong because it's just irritating, right? But when we were told by Minister Studley that we'll get a better understanding and more of an explanation coming from the PUB about the adjustment in fuel prices, and you know it used to be, it was only Wednesday nights that we saw this. Now the interruption formula has been used repeatedly, not in this instance, but it has happened a lot. Now when we see what's going on in the world and the price of oil that is headed towards $100 a barrel, and who knows, it's good for the provincial coffers, not necessarily good for me. Speaking of the banks, so obviously all of us who are servicing some debt breathe a little sigh of relief regarding the Bank of Canada holding their benchmark interest rates steady at 5%. I mean, we saw 10 straight increases. It happened very, very quickly. The real issue here is, you know, what's the issue regarding inflation? I haven't felt any relief here, even if things have stabilized. And yes, the input cost for food in particular has absolutely stabilized and in many arenas has come down a little bit. Not that I'm feeling that as the grocery shopper. But when you read through the Bank of Canada's report, they're talking about bond yields and growth rates and the target towards getting back to the 2 to 3% inflationary rate. The problem then becomes, when it pounds my purchasing problem, prowess of my money, that's a problem. When it sees more and more people that probably won't be, have a job, that's a problem. So the pain is absolutely part of Bank of Canada's play here. I think it's absolutely fair to question whether or not the cheap or free money was in place for far too long, and as it turns out, it absolutely was. It has contributed to the overall household debt load that Canadians are carrying at an all-time high. So... Is it that big a deal? And this is asked as from a, a starting place of, I guess, ignorance. Is it that big a deal to get to 3% and inflict the pain across the entirety of the economy? You know, is that more of a feel-good measure for the, go the governor, Mr. Macklem, and otherwise? Is it that big a deal if it, you know, stands firm at 3.5 or 4% and yet people are able to work, our purchasing power increases? You know, and it's one thing for premiers and opposition members federally to talk about the incompetence they'll refer to or the misunderstanding of the reality of life for Canadian families and what it means regarding these interest rate hikes. But Mr. Macklin, he's said some of the quiet parts out loud. There will be pain as the Bank of Canada tries to recover from not a standalone central bank institution that absolutely blew it. That's not the point. The point is, as they try to get back inside of their own mandate, it's going to come with significant pain across the board for Canadian families. So I would ask once again, very similar to, you know, the federal government taking on extraordinary debt load. And yes, the bill will have to be paid at some point. Is it more important to see inflation at two with the pain that will be uh, coming with it, because interest rate hikes, they won't manifest themselves in any adjustment to inflation, maybe for like 18 months. So that's the question. Are you more concerned with the strength of the economy and your purchasing power, which is absolutely has, has an impact regarding inflation, or the pain that it's going to inflict to get back to 2 to 3% of inflation, similar to the debt load that the federal government's taken on throughout the pandemic, which is whopping, it's enormous, everyone knows it, it's easy to see. Their debt load versus my debt load are two different things. So imagine, currently right now for Canadian households, for every dollar coming in, we're spending on average $1.86 to service our debt. Talk about unsustainable. So 
Again, that's the Bank of Canada issue. And, of course, monetary policy is obviously complex. Maybe it's time to get uh, economist Trevor Tone back on. I read he's a University of Calgary professor. I read his takeaway, his thoughts on the Bank of Canada report, which he does a really good job digesting and breaking it down to bite-sized morsels for people like myself and probably people like you. Okay. Local banks. It's one thing if you live in a centre that hasn't seen your access to a bank compromised. And yes, Scotiabank will be the focus here. And another seven or eight closures coming in different parts of the province. It's a little bit remarkable to me how many people are sending me emails saying, it's sort of a silly story. Online banking is the way. Sure. Online banking is the way for many. The trend towards moving to banking online is undeniable. We do our banking online. Not to say that I haven't walked into the bank itself in the recent past because I have. But Mayor Justin Blackler in Twillingate yesterday, I think, makes the ultimate point. It's not only about the bank. It's about what people see as a continued erosion of services, where they live in smaller, remote communities. In addition to that, it comes with a different impact if we talk about folks, say, for instance, Twillingate. If you go to a larger center, let's say you go to Gander to do your banking, Mayor Blackler is 100% right. They will also come home with a vehicle full of other goods and services that they bought because there's different options, maybe different price points in Gander versus shopping in their own community. So it's not just about being able to walk in, say, good morning to the teller or your financial advisor or whatever the case may be. It may indeed come uh, with an impact across the board. Because every bit of retail dollar spent in small communities is critically important. To see any decrease in their profitability, what might be the next move here? The shop that sees a decrease in their profitability may indeed shutter its doors. And why might that happen? Let's just say you see a 25% 25 drop-off. What about a 15 or 20% of that is directly attributed to people traveling to bank and consequently shop? So the impact is not just the bank the physical bricks and mortar institution, it has different implications. So I get people, you know, kind of scoffing at the concerns brought forward, but I understand the concerns because it is a pile on of services that have been eroded, banks and other institutions that have shuttered and moving on. Again, inside the complaint world, it's also important to talk about potential solutions. And I think the two that were broached yesterday make a lot of sense. There is an opportunity for credit unions. Ken Cavanaugh from Bell Island called yesterday saying that there is an unwritten want to keep uh, the credit unions and other co-ops from expanding. I don't know what the motivation would be there beyond the fact that some of the larger entities like banks, for instance, they want to have a competitive advantage. But now for communities that don't have a bank, period, Scotiabank or otherwise, Hopefully, just hopefully, if there's something about squashing the expansion of co-ops, including credit unions, that has to go away because the credit union might be an excellent option. Secondly, there was once a concept of banking at the post office. Post office banking makes a lot of sense. You know, talk about the two birds, one stone issue. People are really disappointed when they see the post office shutter where they are. But if there was an ability to combine services in one building, post office and a bank, in a post office bank, that might absolutely be something that we have to pursue. Now, the credit union issue would 100% be a provincial one. When we talk the implication of Canada Post, it would have to be your member of parliament and the House of Commons to talk about, th- and it's not just happening in this province. Rural Canadians are seeing some of their services and access to moving farther afield. 
So while we can complain, and rightfully so, some solutions might also be a helpful part of those conversations, as was brought forward by Mayor Blackler and others in the recent past. Okay, let's take a break. Once again, the Auditor General coming up. We've also had a request from a bunch of people out in Stephenville to ask very specific questions of the mayor. Tom Rose will be joining us at some point this morning. The primary question, and of course there's always going to be many, is the classic, the who knew what when. Since the airport was sold to Carl Diamond and the Diamond Group of Companies, so we invited Mr. Diamond on as well. He's apparently unavailable throughout the remainder of this week, but maybe we'll get him next week. The question is, after the sale and the clearing up of all the liabilities, there was a deal struck between World Energy GH2 and John Risley and the Diamond Group about a piece of land on the airport property for a laydown yard, coming with some pretty significant revenue for the Diamond Group, as opposed to who on council knew or did not know about the potential for that type of deal to be struck and the couple of million dollars-ish, someone used five million yesterday, the, one, the number I remember is two million, millions, millions in revenue per year to help the town itself recover some of the monies that they floated to the airport authority and even just general coffers. So important question because it stands to reason that someone had to know, or at least should have known, ongoing conversations with World Energy GH2 over the years. The relationship has been very clear and touted and applauded by members of council, including the mayor. So thank you, Linda. So we'll ask that question of Mayor Rose when we get a chance this after or this morning sometime. Okay, I was just passed a news release or some response correspondence between members of the House of Assembly and the Auditor General. So I'll give that a little careful perusal during the break. It won't come back. Hopefully we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. I don't see anything filled in here yet, but let's just go with good morning. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. It's Paul from the Eating Disorder Foundation. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. How are you? Not so bad, sir. Thank you very much, and thanks for the opportunity to get on. Uh, Patty, I'm actually out in Cornerbrook this morning, and uh, I just wanted to let everybody know out this way that uh, we're going to have a public information session tonight at uh, 7.30 for uh, the general public and for families and uh, other interested people who'd like to learn a little bit more about eating disorders and about what the foundation does throughout, throughout the province. What does the Eating Disorder Foundation presence look like outside of St. John's? Because we talk a lot about over the years, you know, the work that was done, the advocacy to see an inpatient uh, facility inside the Health Sciences Center and those types of things. And we know that you're physically located here. What does access to programs and support look like outside of St. John's or the Northeast Avalon? Actually, it's it's not, not all that terrible, Patty. I mean, the mental health addiction staff throughout the different zones of Newfoundland Labrador Health Services all have received some training and have uh, protocols and procedures, so they can certainly do the initial steps of talking to uh, individuals about, uh, about their eating disorders. And uh, with our assistance, if necessary, we can help them make the referrals to the programs in St. John's, as, as you know. Uh, the programs in St. John's, Adolescent Medicine, the HOPE program, and the uh, Eating Disorder Inpatient program are all provincial programs, and they are set up and designed to support individuals anywhere in the province. Of course, as is our foundation, we try to support people anywhere in this province. Are there many, like there's all sorts of different issues and 
illnesses and diseases where they have the standalone support groups that aren't formally brought forward by organizations like yourself. Are they populated throughout the entirety of the province? Because sometimes you need, you need the professional, uh, professional assessment, professional treatment, but also when it comes, you know, even just on the mental and emotional toll, sometimes support groups can be extremely valuable to people. We know there's all kinds of them out there in different forms and fashions, including on the West Coast. How about for eating disorders? Do you know of any or many? Uh, we, since, uh, I guess since COVID, Patty, we've moved to uh, a virtual environment, which, believe it or not, was a benefit because it allowed us to offer all of our programs and services online, and they're now available to people anywhere in the province, uh, and it could be Maine and, and Labrador, or it could be anywhere on the southwest coast of the province. We've had people who come participate in our programs virtually, and uh, the comments we're getting back is that it does work for them. However, in saying that, one of the reasons that I'm in Cornerbrook today is that it's the start of trying to be more present in the province, to be out here physically, to talk to people, to uh, to share experiences. We have board members in all regions of the province. That's one of the things we're very fortunate about. We have three board members here in western Newfoundland. We have a board member in Labrador, and uh, as well as, of course, the, the greater St. John's area in the Avalon. And I'm going to sit down with our board members out here and talk about what we need to do to increase our presence. And also, I want to use them as our eyes and our ears here to let us know what are the kinds of supports that we should be offering and what do we need to do to be more relevant to the people of Western Newfoundland, Central Newfoundland, and, of course, the Labrador region as well. It's hard to talk about the unknown, but we do know that some people are unwilling to talk about their struggles with mental illness, whether it be based on stigma or access to services. What do we think is happening in the world of eating disorders? Because I think the conversation has improved regarding stigma. People who know they need help are more willing to get help. Now, that's not a, you know, a broad stroke that everybody who's struggling is doing what they need to do to find professional help. But how does it work with uh, eating disorders, do you think? Are people who are absolutely suffering, suffering in silence, or are more people coming forward for formal diagnosis and treatment? That's a really good question, and and again, it goes back to one of the reasons why I wanted to be in different regions of the province uh, right now, particularly in the Cornerbrook area, to give people an opportunity to hear from us that we're here, we're available, we're open to talking to you, we'll help you along your journey. And I think you're absolutely right that there are individuals out there who aren't quite ready to talk yet, but that doesn't mean that their families don't have concerns and that they don't want to have a chat with somebody and find out what they can do to help their individual, their fam- their loved one, their family member, and that's the role that we play. And if we're not out talking to people, they'll never know that we're here to do that. Where can they find you in Cornerbrook? You can find me this evening at 7.30 at the Glenmill Inn, the Birchie Cove Room, and I uh, look forward to uh, seeing a number of people from the West Coast, and uh, I'll do a short presentation, and then we'll open it up to some questions and a chat, and uh, I'll try to put people uh, in front of the right people to, to talk to, to get the support and the help that they believe they need at this stage of their journey. I appreciate this, Paul. Hopefully you get yeah. a, a lot of people come out, because certainly... 
it's prevalent everywhere. And again, we're not talking about a teenage girl illness anymore because that's unfortunately how it was viewed in many people's mind's eye. It's not that at all. It's across the age no. demographics and genders. So hopefully folks in your uh, out in Cornerbrook that know they probably should be speaking with someone like you, hear the stories, talk about supports available. Hopefully they make their way to the Glen Mill tonight. Yeah, absolutely, Patty. I couldn't, couldn't have said it better. Really appreciate that. One other thing I wanted to do this morning, if I could, I wanted to have a great big shout-out to uh, the Masterless Men, to the uh, Dolly Kits, Scott Graham, and especially to the people who came out and supported our Concert of Hope last Saturday night. We had a sellout crowd at the Arts and Culture Centre in St. John's, and uh, it was a great show, but it couldn't have happened if it hadn't been from the support that we received from the people in the community, the groups that played, and you guys at VOCM, your own Greg Smith was our MC, but the support you've given me by allowing me to go on pretty much on a weekly basis to promote the concert, I think led to the success that we had. So thanks to everybody for that. Happy to help. Enjoy the uh, visit to Cornerbrook and stay in touch. Safe travels. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Paul. That's Paul Toomey, the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Let's go to line number two. Al, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing this morning, buddy? Not too bad at all. How about you? Oh, man. I tell you, I got hooked up with a wood stove. I'm the guy that needs a wood stove, and I uh, got some work boots the other day. Uh, got to say, man, one of the local business stepped up. Uh, Shannon Tucker, I guess. I don't know if he might mention him, but Tucker's Home Improvements. Guy bought me a wood stove because he heard I was in the bush with no heat. And uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm really... as a bug in a rug, my friend. I'm really pleased to hear that. We were uh, going back and forth via email. I put out a bunch of feelers for some heating options, including a wood stove. Before I could even get to it, you got some help from that particular company. So I'm really pleased. That's great. It's awesome, Patty. But now, I guess I called it. I got a couple of things to like talk about this morning. But now, I, I had a run-in with the mental health crisis team there yesterday at my uh, my place. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm bipolar. Uh, like I think I stated before, I live in the bush. I'm, you know, a good 15 minutes walk from where you would leave the road. I don't want to say where I am, but I'm about an hour's drive outside of town, and then it's 15 minutes to walk in there. So, I mean, I guess the mental health had, team had some, some questions about me. They wanted to come check on me, which is fine and dandy, and I appreciate. Uh, what I don't appreciate is the fact that they took the time to call the RCMP, uh, meet, a, meet up with them in the parking lot close to where I am, walk the 15 minutes to my door, and there was no phone call. I look out my window, and I saw these two people literally sneaking up to my motorhome with two RCMP uh, probably about 20 feet back, standing there. One of them had their hand on their guns. I've done a few years in jails, Petty. I don't like the RCMP. I don't, they don't make me feel comfortable. Uh, I see them, and I think I'm going to get beat up. I think I'm going to get arrested. They do not put me at ease. I do understand why they would be there. I, I get it. I completely get it. I'm not saying that these people doing their job don't have a right to have police protection coming in the woods to talk to God knows who I am, right? Uh, but the way they did it, they snuck up, and then it was like two kids in a candy shop with their, their eyes, they're, they're, you know, blocking the glare from my window to look in to, to where I live, right next to where the door was. They didn't call out. They didn't lock, knock on the door. I mean, I could have been naked. I could have had a girl in there. I could have been at any number of things that was none of their business. It's the same thing as walking up to your house, bypassing your front door, and going to your bedroom window and peering in. And they snuck. So... I sent them packing, to be honest with you, Patty. Uh, I could have used talking to them, uh, but once I saw the, when I saw their behavior of doing that, sneaking up to, 
to sneak in up to where I live, to my home, and peer in through my window without announcing themselves, with any, without any, any making any noise. They, they went out of their way to be quiet. And then I see these two cops, one with a hand on the gun. When I start telling them, why did you bring their goons, the cops start laughing. They think it's hilarious that I'm angry that they show up out of nowhere, unannounced, where I live and my peace. And, and Patty, I live a pretty peaceful life. I'm in the woods with my dog all day. I'm wandering around. I'm picking mushrooms. I'm, I'm, I'm mapping things out. I have plans in my life. I'm moving forward. I'm not living in despair. Uh, I mean, I, I had, do have plans for, for a housing situation in St. John's or in Newfoundland that maybe we could talk about later uh, at another date or today if you want to listen to me whine for hours. But anyway, I, I digress. Uh, but basically, it, it's just when they show up like that, uh, like I said, they could have called. They have my phone number. They could have called even two minutes up the trail if they wanted to catch me off guard. I mean, it's not like I'm doing anything illegal. Just very right, quickly, you know? Al, uh, what prompted the wellness check? Uh, somebody had called them. I, I'm bipolar, and I have my moments, and I have friends that I reach out to uh, sometimes. And I guess somebody somebody had called out of, out of, out of more concern than anything, and I guess they haven't had enough... I mean, I know who it was, and I don't hold any grudges against them at all. Uh, I mean, people do what they think they should do, but I mean, the way the way that mental health is structured, and it's all across Canada. This is not a Newfoundland problem. Uh, it's bad in Newfoundland, but it's structured that they have to get the police involved right away. Yep. The cops have to be there, and I, I get it. I do get it for their safety. That's that's understandable. But I mean, like for example, my situation is a little different, but. Even a courtesy call, a heads up. I mean, they could have just been right around the trees, Patty, and gave a call and said, hey, this is who we are. We're, we're right here right now. Would you like to talk to us? And I probably would have said, yes, would you like a cup of coffee? Right? Instead of them sneaking up, peering in. So, I mean, I called Eastern Health and tried to put a complaint in. They didn't care. They, they literally didn't care. Yeah, the place That's to go with that type of complaint or concern is really Public Safety Canada. Back in 2020, there was actually full hearings about the RCMP and wellness checks, the prevalence of, the reasons for. The RCMP were actually called in front of the, the uh, parliamentary committee responsible, uh, having to answer questions about the raw data and their approach and their training. So this has been on the forefront for quite a long time. The RNC have adopted a model which includes people in civilian clothes, you know, mental health professionals. I think it's called the Memphis model, but sneaking up on someone who's unsuspecting and it's in this vein is creating a potentially dangerous situation unnecessarily. So I completely get your concerns, Al. And if you wanted to broach another couple of uh, topics, we could do it another time. I'm a bit late for the news here now, but I'm really glad that you got the wood stove. Hopefully you're going to be comfortable and safe. And it's an interesting issue you bring up about wellness checks because law enforcement does play a role, but there's got to be a better way than what you experience. I appreciate your time. Anything else? Very quickly before I have to go. Patty, uh, I sent you an email this morning. Uh, I just want to reiterate, uh, your, your show, this is actually special for Newfoundland. I've lived all over this country. Uh, I mean, the only thing I can kind of compare it to would be trader time out of Whitehorse, Yukon. But, but this, is, this, is an, this, is, this is a gem. Your show, this show where people can call in and actually get their voice out on the radio is gold. This, this, your show just cannot end. It, it can't. It, <laughs> it has to keep going because it's, it's very, so very, very important. And I enjoy listening to everybody call in. 
you know, even people I don't agree with and I think are completely out to lunch, awesome. Because nobody's right, nobody's wrong. It's all everybody's opinion, and it's great that everybody has this platform to get their opinion out. And I, I appreciate what you're doing, and uh, thank you very much, Patty. I appreciate it, Al. The show will endure well after I leave, that's for sure. I appreciate your time. Stay well. Right on, my buddy. Okay, I'll man. be calling. I'm starting a cult of civil disobedience pretty soon, and I'd like to call uh, and uh, tell you all about that. All right, I'll Take care. <laughs> Go okay. easy, brother. All right, Cheers. bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for news. When we come back, the Provinces Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan, is going to kick off the next hour. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. So good morning to the Provinces Auditor General. That's Denise Hanrahan. And good morning, Denise. You're on the air. Good morning. Yet another scathing report. I really appreciate the work that you and your team do at the Auditor General's office. I heard someone refer to what's going on at Mon and their operations as an ad hocracy. How accurate do you think that is? That's an interesting word. I hadn't heard that one up to now, um, but certainly um, I find the findings in our report are concerning for sure. Absolutely right. Now, this is, we'll get into what you did find, but I'm really curious about the redactions. The Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, said this is a normal course of action for government to protect privacy based on legislation. But it was as far back as August that you got basically what is a cease and desist letter, both from the leadership at Genesis and C-Corp. What were they saying? So the audit that we conducted in the month, of course, was, as per my legislation, a special assignment, which means I do that report and I submit it into the lieutenant governor and council. Uh, we did submit an unredacted report, um, but the province ultimately, when they receive that report, have to do what they feel is necessary, and so the redactions are something that government would speak to. Because, you know, it seems curious to me, core funding for C-Core and Genesis and the works is very real. It's no problem to find out who are in leadership positions there. So was this all about their compensation? It appears so. We did receive correspondence in August from two of them um, that stated that they didn't feel that I had the jurisdiction to include them in the report and that they had concerns about the personal information uh, of the people working with them. Um, ultimately, um, I feel, as according to my legislation, that as a special assignment, um, and as my legislation says, uh, there are areas available to audit which are defined, I felt because they were consolidated into Memorial's financial statement, which is consolidated into the public accounts, they are uh, relevant from a financial perspective to the province, and I included them in full in my report. Before we get to some of the numbers regarding compensation and the average of administrative salaries per student, which are very fascinating numbers, what do they actually have in place regarding any policies surrounding compensation? You, you say they're either outdated or non-existent. What is actually in place? So they do have processes, but I guess the, the main issue for us as we went down through it, and it was frustrating, to be honest, to try to figure things out, um, is that if they did have policies, they hadn't been re reviewed in accordance with what the policy stated should have happened, or there was no policy at all. So, for example, we found a lack of position descriptions. We found, you know, things where um, we weren't able to find uh, a good report that showed us who did what from a function perspective. There were issues with even getting organizational charts because they were all different across the university. So it was challenging to be able to stitch together um, what they actually had and what they actually didn't. 
insofar as job descriptions, what does that mean across, say, for instance, the vice presidential level? I mean, even when we talk about communications that are supposed to be handled inside of one department, but there are senior communication officials across all the VP offices, what did we see regarding their compensation when compared to, say, the equivalent at the government level? So for all seven vice presidents in our audit, we could not find a position description. In order for us to do our audit work, we had to gather together various sources of information in order for us to do that comparison that you just mentioned. Uh, we are not experts in comparing jobs, so we always tend to rely on an external expert who breaks the jobs down beyond the titles and compares the components of the job, particularly as it relates to know-how accounting and problem-solving, and so when we did do that and were able to get those comparisons done, we found um, that many of the executive positions were significantly higher than the ones in government for the same work. So a $143,000 difference between the salary of a campus VP versus an assistant deputy minister in government, that's a whopping big number. And insofar as the comparatives regarding universities across the country, the highest administrative salaries per student in Canada at 2369 average across the country 893 The next closest to us was somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,994. When you're doing this work, is it all about the raw data or are there personal interviews also a part of this? We uh, interview numerous people in the organization at various levels, from the Board of Regents down throughout the organization. A lot of our day-to-day -day contact is with particular individuals who uh, can funnel us the, the documents that we need, and we certainly have uh, a lot of respect for and, and did receive lots of information. But difficult for somebody to give you something when they don't have it, um, and so that's sometimes that's challenging. But certainly, you know, in cases where particularly we're doing comparisons, we're always looking looking for uh, any work that somebody else has done. In this particular case, on those numbers you mentioned, that was an external third-party analysis that compared uh, medium-sized universities, and certainly we felt uh, if you look at oversight and you look at admin costs, um, from our perspective, there was a contribution that came from that decentralized nature, that ability to spend and hire um, in the various vice president portfolios, and you saw that, like you mentioned, in seeing 18, say, managers of communications, but only four of them reporting to the person that was ultimately charged and responsible for that activity. Impossible to know if we have a top-heavy institution, because if 36 positions are sampled, 35 or 97 percent, no job description, which is remarkable to me. And then across uh, senior leadership positions, none for 28 of the 29 management positions. So ultimately, what can we glean from this? Because it comes, becomes virtually impossible to know whether or not there's too many. We know they're overpaid, just based on comparisons inside core government. But what's the takeaway? So for the executive group, um, we did find when we did that comparison with other universities that Memorial uh, had more vice presidents than um, those similar organizations. Uh, Memorial had seven vice presidents compared to an average of five for other universities. We also, you know, um, when you compare down to, you know, the people that would report to that provost position, which wasn't the case at Memorial, uh, and you wonder what impact that would have 
if there had been more of the reporting that matched what was more common across universities in the country. Um, and certainly when you look at quantities, um, and we did compare to the provincial government uh, in some instances, let's say, you know, communications or IT, um, you know, there generally tends to be value in a centralized function, uh, both from a cost effectiveness and as well as an efficiency for getting those process. What the quantity is, um, that's the challenge from an assessment perspective, but certainly we felt that it did contribute to that high cost. Is this a department-by-department department, uh, audit or analysis, or is this just core spending and oversight? So our audit was focused on the operating fund with respect to compensation and expenses. We didn't look at, for example, anything to do with the Senate or the Senate's operations or any of the academic units in the university. When we looked at compensation, for example, we didn't look at the president. We started with the executive team, the vice presidents, and their management teams. We didn't look at bargaining unit. We didn't look at the expenses in the separately incorporated entities. So there was, you know, many areas where things were excluded. Um, as I'm sure you can appreciate, it's a very large, complex organization, and we felt the best value for the province in submitting a report was one that was very timely, and so we wanted to be sure we could cover as much as we can um, in a short amount of time, and we were proud that my team was able to pull together a report that we were able to submit within 10 months of the end of that audit period. So what are we talking about for what you examined, an overall operations budget that was under scrutiny? What's the annual total? So about, um, now you're going to ask me a question I don't have right in front of me. Oh. Uh, I know that there was $190 million in non-operating funds that weren't covered. So, right. you know, the remainder of their about $650 million budget uh, was probably included from that perspective. But we only scratch at that. So, for example, compensation is worth about $416 million a year. It's about 65% of the university's total costs. We only scoped in to be considered about 21% of it. And then we only did a sample of that. So we tend to very... Uh, you, you can only do so much. Uh, for expenses, it's even smaller. So we were even reduced smaller on expenses about what piece we looked at. And I think when we calculated down that our population that we would even consider was only 3 or 4%. So it's very small drills. It's the reason that we can't extrapolate our findings. So when we find something, we can't say this error means it's worth this much more across the organization. They're subjective samples. So that's kind of how we do our testing. Before we get into the recommendations, which have been accepted or so-called accepted by the interim provo and president Neil Bose. Where does the buck stop here? Whose responsibility is to tighten up the ship at Memorial University? Is this a legislative issue? Is it in the president's office? Is it the Board of Regents? That seems like a bit of an odd structural question, but it'd be important to know where to point, not necessarily fingers of blame, but fingers of responsibility. The university is a unique organization uh, compared, say, to a government department. Um, we sometimes would use in-house comparators like the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure from a dollar perspective or different lines of business and those types of things. But Memorial it is different, and it has bicameral governance, and there is a role for the Board of Regents and a role for the Senate. In this particular audit, of course, uh, the Board of Regents is charged with governance and certainly were a focus and involved in some of ours. So I certainly think there is a role in looking at these recommendations for, we say memorial inclusively, but, 
you know, there is a role uh, for the Board of Regents when we look at the quality of financial information that they get and their oversight of management. There's also a role then for the president and the vice presidents with respect to ensuring that the operations are efficient and effective. And I think there are improvements there based on those recommendations where I would expect um, that they will be able to work on policies and practices and to improve that. And then I would argue you go below that. There are people running programs. There are people, you know, we found numerous instances where Memorial has an internal audit function, which is a very positive thing to have, but yet their recommendations weren't acted on. So I think it's important to listen in-house when people are saying there are better ways to do things. So when we talk about government withholding some $68 million, resulting in a doubling of tuition, collegial governance and additional seats on the Board of Regents, the strike last year, grabbed all the headlines, but certainly I'm not going to get you to comment on what I'm going to say here, but certainly the monies that were held back by government resulting in that tuition issue can be found inside of operations at Memorial University because the numbers are completely out of whack. Let's talk about recommendations. What specifically should we consider as the taxpayers who are largely subsidizing Memorial University? I think it's important that the you know, the actions that Memorial take, the timely with respect to, we made eight recommendations from almost 90 findings, um, and our number one recommendation was evaluating oversight, and I think that should happen right across the entire operation, which includes all the campuses, all the entities. Um, and we need to ensure that they're aligned and using, uh, have the best possible use of public resources. Um, certainly, we feel that um, one of our questions, we always pose questions in our reports uh, that we think after reading it, uh, you know, you may have, and we think government, um, you know, will get asked, how do they ensure Memorial is going to act on recommendations like evaluating oversight and ensuring that its management and board have the financial information that they need and that, you know, all the various things we mentioned in the report from having valid compensation policies to having, uh, you know, an appropriate cost-effective admin structure are all uh, very important, but I think they're all fixable. And I think we certainly took on this audit with an attitude of improving accountability, of trying to help. And I really feel that our recommendations um, are things that are practical and reasonable and I think would really go a long way. You know, I think there's enough responsibility and accountability for every everybody to take a piece of the various parties that played in this report for sure. Are there any guardrails in place for spending, gifts and otherwise? I mean, to see numbers like $50,000 for senior officials like deans and directors to go to a party or host a party that's only attended by their own colleagues, are there any guardrails at all or is this simply, once again, adhocracy at at their own whim? We found in our audit that the vice presidents operate... um, autonomously. So they are assigned their budget and they have the authority um, exclusively to spend or hire as they see fit within their um, portfolios. And of course, uh, the policies may give some guidance. We found, you know, gaps, and sometimes they give guidance. But, I mean, they had one policy which stated, you know, hosting was worth a certain value, and then another policy that was explicitly stated, this is for all the things not covered in the other one. Um, so when your policies are not explicit or not clear, then you'll have events that have alcohol in them. you have events that go over the established policy, and we found numerous instances where there were exceptions given to approval of policy 
policies, which really question, did you have a policy in the first place? Yeah, and the money spent on consultants and headhunters or recruitment firms or the like, it's all a little bit out of control at Memorial. Anything else that you'd like to highlight inside your findings? No, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk through it. I know this is a really big report for people to wrap their heads around, um, and we were very thankful to be able to uh, be able to synthesize it so that we could have constructive moving forward recommendations for the organization, and I really want to give a shout-out to my team who worked very diligently uh, to ensure that we had a report that we could provide government that was clear and was practical. Uh, before we let you go, can you tell us about or give us some high-level understanding of what you're doing now with the performance audit of the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, because we've all been talking about housing and the crunch, but operations there seem to be, there's more to be discerned from what they're doing. What are you working on? So we currently are in active audit execution into our audit at Oil Co., and this really would be the conclusion of that NALCOR audit that we did. Oil Co. was kind of in a different circumstance, so we're con- actively concluding that audit right now, and it would be a similar vein to what we did um, at NALCOR with respect to compensation and expenses, those types of things. And we're also active into doing our assessment of Crown lands, so we would be looking at management, administration, enforcement of Crown lands, um, and that audit is progressing along. We're in the early stages, early planning stages for five audits, um, and Newfoundland Housing is one of those. So we have um, written five of five entities to tell them that we are planning on doing performance audits into them. So with respect to Newfoundland Housing, we're looking at housing unit supply management. So early days, very wide topic. We will spend a good bit of time now getting as much information as we can and then defining a scope and objectives and criteria to be able to have a timely report. Our goal for all of these seven reports would be releases in 2024. We also have reports now that we're starting the early stages on of scoping for um, the RNC operations, the medical clear plan, MCP, expenditures at the legislature, and facilities management at Memorial. Do you have the numbers, the horsepower in the office to do all these reports? Because it's complex and there's a ton of data, ton of consideration to be offered even in defining scopes and objectives of these reports or audits. Do you have the horsepower you need? We do. Uh, the change in my legislation and the subsequent change to my budget has facilitated um, a significant size increase for my office. Um, we are a lean machine. In addition to the seven performance topics next year that my team is dedicated to, we're also doing continuous monitoring on our past recommendations. We're doing an annual report that gets more comprehensive every year. And I can't forget our financial statement audit branch, who this year did their first audit of Eastern Health and now on a go-forward We'll be doing the financial statement audit for the Provincial Health Authority, um, and we continue to add clients on that side of our work because we think it's really important that we do both the financial statement audits, which will inform us for performance audits. So I'm a very fortunate Auditor General to have such a talented, hardworking team, and we've had many good people uh, join us in the last few years, and I have to say uh, everybody in my office is very motivated by the type of work that we do. Uh, It is impactful. They're very proud of the work they do. Um, And I would certainly encourage anybody out there 
uh, when we they see our, our positions go up. That's the advantage our office offers is that we really do interesting, important work for the people of the province. Is it solely your role and responsibility to set and define the scope and objective and whether it be time frames and parameters used, 10-year windows, 20-year windows? Is that completely up to you or is that something that is delivered to you? It is totally my prerogative, with the exception of if I'm asked to do something. So for Memorial, for example, the province asked us to do something. It was very general. They just stated in their order that they wanted us to look at spending and operations. So then we take that away to define what we believe we can get done in a timely manner. If the Public Accounts Committee or the House of Assembly was to ask us, they probably would do the same. But in most cases, uh, it is us selecting. And I will tell you, we're very influenced by prior work where the recommendations didn't get fully implemented. We are also impacted by if another province has done work. Um, and then certainly we look at what's happening here. And when we pick these topics, obviously, I think I have previously committed publicly uh, that we would be at Memorial frequently, and we felt facilities management was a great next topic. Um, it wasn't something we went too deep into in this one and certainly would be a very wide topic. And trying to be sure that we are doing a good job of covering the $9 billion dollars that government spends every year and that we are doing a uh, you know really doing a good spread across organizations so yeah that's uh, myself and my team put a lot of work and effort into doing that i appreciate your time this morning and the work that you and the auditor general's office do, does thank you denise i appreciate it thank you take care bye-bye, bye-bye. denise henran <laughs> provinces ag a lot there you want to comment it uh, comment on it or anything else you can do it right after this break don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number one good morning richard cashin here on the air uh, yeah, good morning, Patty. The reason for my call, um, you may recall General Mark Milley, the number one general in the large, of the largest uh, military force in the world, the United States. His uh, grandfather was from Newfoundland, and he showed up here on uh, our Remembrance Day, July 1st. Indeed, I don't know what well, I was appalled by the lack of attention the press paid to that. Just one second, I mean, Mr. Cashin, General Milley himself was here? Yes, there you go. You I had no idea. Well in, no, there you go. Well, this is a sad reflection on the curiosity or lack thereof of journalism in Newfoundland. He was here on the 1st of July, and he got as much publicity as a one-armed man from outer Mongolia would have got. There was a little piece in the telegram and NTV had a little bit about him. I don't think CBC, I didn't see any reference to him. Now, his grandfather was from Newfoundland and may have been, I can't recall this, part of the Blue Putties, the first 400. And he showed up here and no attention paid to him. And I think that I, I remember, uh, I'm old enough to remember Joey Smallwood, who believed in pageantry and had some imagination. A big deal would have been made of that. And I'm a sort of appalled as, as how little attention our press paid to that. Um, so that's a re- now what prompted me to call you to now is the Atlantic magazine, which is one of the more seminal magazines in America, has his picture and, a, and the headline is The Patriot. What does a general do when the commander in chief undermines the Constitution? I read the and article course, in the September issue. It said how Mark Milley held the line, if I remember correctly. 
that, that's right. Mm-hmm. But there was no publicity given to him here. And actually, you know, if Memorial University, which sometimes reminds me of the medieval Christian church and what Memorial needs is a Martin Luther to shake it up, uh, he's an obvious candidate for an honorary degree. Not only would that honor him, but it would it would appear in the American press, this obscure university in this obscure part of the world, Newfoundland, gives an honorary degree and explains why. And this this is something we should be capitalizing on. That's the reason for my call. Yeah, General Milley was the 20th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the primary and principal military uh, leader in the country. Uh, I'll I'll in accept. The world. Uh, well, fair enough. That, I think that's fair to say. Uh, I'll accept the slight on the local media for not doing more with it. Had I known, I would have done everything in my power to get an opportunity to speak with General Milley. To be honest, because not only yeah, well, there wasn't, but there sorry. wasn't that much publicity. I didn't hear hear any publicity except on. I always watch. One time, I used to go regularly to the service on the July 1st to the memorial uh, to the uh, you know to the uh, on on Duckworth Street or on Water Streets on both streets actually mm-hmm. I used to go every year and uh, so I watched it on the telly and uh, I was appalled at well NTV I was on I was watching and they made some reference to his grandfather being from Newfoundland and um, so I thought, this is pretty poor show. And uh, he's an obvious candidate for an honorary degree from Memorial. And uh, I don't know if they have the wit to do that, but it would be good for Memorial because it would be covered in the American press to some degree, and uh, it would be good for us. And there's also another prominent person in uh, American life today, the Secretary of Energy, former governor of Michigan, Greenham. Her mother uh, grew up on uh, uh, Newtown Road. Uh, Her maiden name was Downton, and her neighbors included uh, the late Bill Romke, the mother, the the late Bill Romke, and Judge Jerry Lang. No publicity has been given to that. Another candidate, in my mind, for an honorary degree from Memorial. But I mean, when in Joey's time, I remember when he, when the university was opened, he brought back all kinds of people with a Newfoundland connection. I remember one of them because she was a friend of my mother's, Patricia Murphy, who had a restaurants in New Rochelle and Lauderdale. Port Lauderdale, and all kinds of people like that, and a big show was made of it. Unfortunately, I think we're we've gone backward. That was the reason for my call. Understood. Uh, I knew uh, Mark Milley's uh, connection with this province regarding his grandfather, who was a member of the Newfoundland Regiment. I don't know if he was part of the Blue Potees or the First no, 500, but uh, it's, it's fascinating. Someone just sent me a few links that there was a news story about his appearance. He was in and out on the same day. There was one on VOCM. The Telegram had it. Someone sent me the NTV link. But certainly, to your point, not the extensive type of coverage that's the presence of someone like a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs was, should uh, absolutely get – 
And someone uh, just whispered in my ear that uh, General Milley's grandfather was in Gallipoli. So fair enough. Uh, how are you, Richard? Well, I'm hanging in, you know. <laughs> Not too bad, I guess. Well, I'm but glad anyway, you made time for the show. Okay. Well, good luck. And and you. so you read that article. It's quite a good article. It is. And this is all about the to and fro or the thrust and parry between himself and the former President Trump. And it's really quite well, contentious. It's, it, it's a fabulous article. The Atlantic is a brilliant magazine. But I mean, I mean, he was he he, and uh, he mentions uh, s- several times in the article. He and other generals were concerned that this erratic president had access to the uh, nuclear weapons, and and that was something that was bothering them. And uh, he also made a an appearance with uh, Trump that he. Uh, thought was inappropriate, but he was sort of sucked into it, and he then apologized publicly, which, needless to say, annoyed uh, uh, Trump. But anyway, as you said, it's a good article, but here we have a prominent uh, connection with Newfoundland. Yes, there was a little publicity. (laughs) As I said, a one-armed man from Outer Mongolia would have got as much. Anyway, good luck. Thank you, sir. Richard Cashin. Uh, so General Mark Milley was down. I didn't even know, to be honest. I think I was away at that point, but that's not an excuse. And, of course, that article in The Atlantic talks about the 400 Minutemen, three intercontinental ballistic missiles, which take about 25 minutes to strike Moscow. You know, there's a lot to it beyond the back and forth between former president and uh, General Milley, but that's fascinating stuff. Anyway, let's take a break. So Dave sent me something regarding, anyway, I'll have a look during the break and then we'll talk with you on the other side. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number Two, say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. That's Barry Petten. He's also the Shadow Minister of Education. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not bad. Thanks. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Patty, I guess you know pretty why I'm calling in. Uh, but before I do that, uh, I just I listened to Mr. Cash, and I remember when he was here last uh, Jordan, July 1st as well, and uh, I kind of tend to agree. I was kind of surprised that I never got more coverage because he's a pretty distinguished, uh, Mr. Milley's pretty distinguished gentleman across this uh, this continent anyway, so I uh, I echo his sentiments. I won't make no shots at the media because I didn't really look at it that way. I just thought it was pretty cool that he come down for July 1st. Uh, uh, celebrations that he had connection to Newfoundland, but uh, in any event, I uh, the AG report, Patty. I mean, uh, I know you had a lengthy discussion with the AG, just heard part of it there when it was meetings. But uh, I mean, I think we we all we all agree. I mean, this issue is not a new issue. It's one that uh, I think me and you have discussed many times. I discussed publicly back uh, you know a year or two ago about Mon's lavishness and the overspending and the, you know no checks and balances and what have you and it's uh, well documented myself and uh, former president Timmons uh, didn't see eye to eye on uh, Mon's expenditure so much so she publicly told me I was uninformed at one point along the way and uh, which that's irrelevant I mean you know that's that's, that's here and there but the point was Patty I think we all can agree I mean Mon, Mon got a major problem and, you know, how do you rectify this problem? We can go down the line and custom chocolates and limousines, and it's been noted, and it's outrageous, and I've stated so. 
But how do you get us to the next step, you know? So we got this report, and uh, we can point fingers all day long. And, I mean, there's lots of fingers we point them on, let's be honest. But, Paddy, the leadership right now, I mean, there's no change there. I mean, Miss Timmons left, but, I mean, we've got no, no real new people in. So it's the same Board of Regents, same chair, same Mr. Bowles was second command beyond Miss Timmons. Uh, I mean, like, there needs to be a cultural shift at Mon in general. And I don't know if the current leadership are the ones that do that shift. You know, it's not, the, you know, it is what it is. The report stands on its own. These people weren't just coming in last month and trying to fix things up. They've been the current, they've been, they've basically fostered and lived in this culture. And, I mean, anyone out there would not would know. I mean, if you're, the way the spending was going on over there, they had to know some of that. I mean, they had to have known. If they never, they should have. I mean, third of the budget coming to the president's, uh, under the president's purview. And it's troubling to me, and the more I think about it, you know, we can go all day long and there's juicy items that catch your attention when you look at $2,000 in chocolates, and no doubt it's outrageous. But there's a bigger, deeper issue there, too. Do you go in while your salary's higher at Mond in the air? It's equivalent to jobs that uh, end up within core government. You know, about the, the amount of VPs, the amount of cost per student, the administrative cost per student compared to other universities across the country. These are alarming for a province of our size, and, I mean, that university, it's, uh, we were also proud of it. But how do you fix the problem now? Now we know the problem. We are all talking about it, and we knew I'm here talking about it now. But I think now you've got to try to find solutions. And where the minister's been too, why the minister's not more, and respectfully, why she's not more actively involved instead of, you know, I think she, the government should be more outraged in the air and should be, you know, be more publicly condemning this instead of we're going to work with them. Well, you're working with the same people. So I think there needs to be more substantive measures made, and sooner than later, I mean, we're spending this public money, Patty. It's not their money. It's hundreds of millions of dollars, and I think it's time for them to, you know, take this a bit more serious. The problem, just from my perspective, regarding the provincial minister of education being more vocal on this front is there's long been that whole issue regarding Memorial University's autonomy. But when we have an opportunity to make caveats associated with government transfer dollars, this is an opportunity right here to put the pressure on Dr. Bose, to put the pressure on the Senate, to put the pressure on the Board of Regions, because this can't stand. This is outrageous. People will focus in on things like $2,700 for a new desk and a chair, $1,700 or $1,800 on chocolates, what have you. That's the little stuff. For me, the biggest issue here is either non-existent or haven't been updated in decades, issues regarding compensation and policies regarding spending and policies surrounding gifts and recruitment and consult like if it's not in place i mean forget the fact we don't even have job descriptions of all the things in this world every single person in this building has a job description why because that's natural course of operations period regardless if you're a university or radio company or a government uh, government department to not even know who has what responsibility how can we understand whether or not we have too many or if they're doing a good job when we don't even know what they're doing and who they answer to. It's remarkable to me. It's that lack of oversight that's always going to be the root of all evil. Talk about I'm entitled to my entitlements, old David Dingwall thing that got him in a lot of trouble. This is exactly it. You're entitled to things if there's no guardrails or pe- people pulling the reins or looking over your shoulder. Of course these things are going to happen. Yeah, no, Patty, it's fair point, you know, and I mean, I'm a public figure, and I mean, I'm, you know, and that's, that's what I sign up for when I get elected, and every expense claim, people can free to free and check, every expense claim, every cent I spend is full disclosure, you can click on the link and you can see right to the, I bought a pen, the last pen I bought, 
and it's why we sign up for because it's not my money it's public money I'm doing my job as a public figure I'm representing my district and that's what we all do in life and then you sign up for that and I don't think it's any different if you're at Mon you're running Mon you're, you're going to spend this public this public dollars and this this is what really and I say this a lot and it irritates me because anyone's welcome to view my expense claims I'm very very above board I probably could be doing, I could be spending more and I don't that's just me but you know when you go back to that autonomy piece I've spoke about this as well, and I spoke this week about it, and I got in a bit of trouble a year or so ago with the one people, you know, I got about a pushback from one officials when I spoke about autonomy, and Neil Bowes the other day, actually, Dr. Bowes, basically refuted what I said. And I, I, I stand by what I'm saying, I, I double down on it now today, too. You, autonomy for the financial piece of the, the public money, the money is transferred and the public spending of that money, or, or whatever they do, that needs to be scrutinized closer. We need to have oversight, just like any other government department on the financial piece that should be brought into the estimates committee in government. People don't realize that's your own budgetary process. We bring all departments in as a committee set up and your line by line item expenditures you go through it. As for the as for the educational research, which is their mandate, I have no problem with Mon Avenue autonomy. That's that's not sure. that's not in a politician's role. Let them go and teach and research that's what they're supposed to. But when we're spending money on them chapters that could have been picked up in an estimates committee meeting, that's what I got a problem with. And I've said it and I'll double down I said to the former Minister Haggy and I've probably said it to this current minister, I will, autonomy needs to be protected. With financial peace, that needs to be removed and that needs to be put back in to the government. Basically, it's our money and we should have that right. The estimates committee should be able to sit down with this university every fall, every spring when budget time comes and they should have to spend, uh, defend every cent they spend on anything like chocolates and limos and what have you. That's our money and we have that right. The autonomy should keep it to education. I have no problem with it. And we need to have that clear divide. And you're right, now is the time. We have the opportunity now to change our funding mechanisms and how it's spent and what responsibilities that Mona has and I think it's long overdue and ever forbid we see this again Patty because like I said this is a long time coming I wasn't shocked at all when the AG's report came back because I mean I was very vocal in calling for the AG to go into Mona for quite some time and I was glad she did, I'm glad the government did it and now we got the results back unfortunately I knew what we were going to get back or I had a strong suspicion and so as how we proceed now is the, is the key and I think the minister needs to really step up and you know government and themselves and change this. And one big thing they really need to change, and it's the leadership over there, I don't know how they do it, but they got to change the culture. They're not entitled, you're right, entitled to my entitlement. This got to change. 2023, people on the streets, people in Africa housing. I got people in my district that are struggling to heat their homes. And you name it, we can't afford to pay mortgages, can't afford to pay rent, and we're watching this stuff happen. It's beyond outrageous, Patty, and it's beyond, to be quite frank, which is sickening. Well, the attention right now and the focus will be on Memorial University, but the issue with line by line adjudication of budgets and transfer of government dollars, let's not kid ourselves. It's as bad or worse in every single agency and board or corp. It is, and we know it is. Why? Because there hasn't been the guardrails in place for far too long. And as when that's the case, it absolutely becomes a cultural issue. It becomes a systemic issue. It becomes an annual rite of passage. We need to have that sort of hard work being done. Every single line item and every piece of budgetary dollar needs to be carefully examined at Mon, at every agency or all the ABCs. Let's get at it. It's the hard work. It's the tedious work. There's no glamour in it. But protecting my money and your money, Dave Williams' money, that's paramount. We can have photo ops all we like. We can talk about investments in one area or another or spending in healthcare and edge. we got to do the hard work. It is going to be real grueling stuff, but it's about time. I appreciate the time this morning. Barry, anything else very quick before I go? No, Patty. As always, thank you very much. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Appreciate 
appreciate it. Thanks, Barry. Barry Petten, PC member of Conception Bay South. Let's take a break. When we come back, Dave wants to uh, respond to what he heard from Jerry Byrne, the minister responsible for immigration. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line four. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Brian. Line number four, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, good morning. Uh, My name is Brian. I'd like to discuss uh, the uh, Minister of what's it called, Immigration, yesterday. The speech he made. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's talking about, uh, you know, we've overseeded our uh, amount of people coming in, which is great. I don't see a thing wrong with it. Uh, the only thing I don't understand, uh, shouldn't uh, some of these government members be uh, sizing up like there's no place to live out around the bay? You can't get apartments, you can't, and, and then when you do get an apartment, the rent, you can't afford it? Like, uh, what are we doing about our situation? I'm sorry, what is the question? Because if you're asking if immigration policy and ministers responsible should have a overview of what immigration means, not just with, you know, filling job opportunities or labor shortages, but yes, it's access to health care. Yes, it's a place to live. They all has to be part and parcel with immigration policy, of course. Yes. Now, I'm thinking more of the uh, rental issue uh, uh, around the day and that, like, you know, it's a job to get an apartment, and if you can get one, it's quite expensive right now. It's uh, Prices have gone, you know. And where, where are they going to put all these people they're bringing in? Uh, do they have places for them or not? Well, the last time we spoke with Minister Byrne on this, you know, we asked him very specifically about how many are living in a hotel, very specifically about how many are getting provincial subsidies like through the NLHC and otherwise. Right. The vast majority of Ukrainians in particular, because that's where many people put their focus, have found uh, market housing, which is good news. But yes, there's so many different stresses on the housing issue. Immigration plays a role. Uh, the population shift from rural to urban plays a role. The short-term rentals play a role, like the Airbnbs of the world. So I think there's a lot to what we're experiencing in housing. Yeah, I, I can understand that too. But, and I also think it's great because around here, in my area, like uh, businesses, help wanted, help wanted, and don't seem like any of us would really want to work. So it's great to they're bringing in these people. You know, like it's a you know hard situation. Business are closed because they couldn't get uh, employees and such, right? Yeah. Sometimes I think we consider newcomers to the province and the country as people who were you know quote unquote taking the jobs we don't want. But of course, inside the world of immigration, some of the federal policies are very targeted about skilled individuals, tradespeople, medical professionals, and tech professionals, and the like. So sometimes I think we just kind of think the immigrants are working at Tim Hortons when immigrants. Or could be your doctor, your engineer, your surgeon, uh, your pharmacist. So they bring some skills with them. Now, certainly some need to learn the language and they need to maybe up, upskill themselves to, you know, have jobs beyond fast food or what have you. But, you know, that's some of the moving parts in immigration that we don't always pay a whole lot of attention to. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as I said before, like, I mean, I have nothing against uh, immigration. I know, uh, you know, it's a, I mean, we're, we are all immigrants <laughs> from somewhere or another, right? It's true. Yep. You know, but uh, just a housing issue. I know, where, uh, like I said, where I live, but like uh, the apartments, uh, like if you get a two bedroom apartment around here for about 750 a month. 
And now that's crawling anywhere between uh, twelve and fifteen hundred dollars a month, right? And there's not much availability, you know. So I'm just wondering, uh, and I'm sure these hotels are being paid by the government, wouldn't they, for immigration people? Yeah, I mean, there have been uh, newcomers staying in hotels. That's absolutely true. We're also told that the government keeps some of these hotel rooms available for the next wave of newcomers, regardless of where they're from, which is something we need to know. Like, exactly, yeah, for, for starters, is it true? And secondly, how many of them are there? And now, so far as rental costs go, you know, everything that the landlord touches has also gone up, right? Whether it be the mortgage rates, which if you had a variable mortgage on a rental property, of course, there's going to be some additional costs passed along to the renter. The trick there is yeah. just how quick the rents have been increased and the amount of time people are given a heads up of these coming okay. and pending increases. Yeah, yeah, right on there. But like I said, too, it's not only the increase. It's the, uh, like, they're just nutting. Like, uh, I own a couple of apartments myself, and I get calls left and right, like, from different people around. And sure, everybody else is, too. There's, uh, there, you know, like, there's nothing available, you know, in this area. And I'm talking about the Bay Roberts area and surrounding areas, right? You know, so it's uh, whatever. I don't know. Understood, Brian. There's a lot to it, you know, but on the federal level. Curiously, former immigration minister, current housing minister, Sean Fraser, talking about, you know, putting a cap on international students. What? I mean, the international students are the exact type of newcomers we need, like specifically what we need. So that's a curious, weird old place to start. And I asked him about it here on this program. But making sure we get immigration numbers right, because nobody wants to move to a country without a place to live or a job. Right. So it's not only in their best interest, but it's in our collective best interest to ensure that the numbers are reflective of opportunity, housing, doctors, jobs jobs, all the rest of it. I appreciate the time, Brian. Anything else before I get to the news? Yeah, I'd like to mention one thing about the, uh, the what's his name, uh, uh, Byrne or something? Jerry Byrne. Jerry Byrne. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, he's all over himself, and he's glad what he done and all this, and they exceeded the amount coming in. Now, but Jerry Byrne, I haven't got to worry about uh, uh, renting an apartment or anything. I mean, he's getting the government salary. He's getting a federal government pension. He's, got, he's also entitled to a provincial government pension and on top of that he uh, turned around a year or so ago and applied for status card you know like uh, where's this guy coming from all those are true (laughs) and i can't speak for where he's coming from but what you said is true yeah but i mean you know it's unreal now i look around this area i won't hold you any longer Uh, they don't refer to him as jerry Byrne. they call him the uh, brian Tobin wannabe is what everybody calls him out this way you know so he's got the same actions as Brian. I guess he copied that well. But anyway, thanks for your time. Anytime, Brian. Thanks for the call. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's get the, uh, the news break in. When we come back, the mayor of Stephenville is Tom Rose. He's in the queue. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. So good morning to the mayor of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Mayor Rose, you're on the air. Hey. Good morning, sir. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Happy to do it. We're going to retrace some ground here today, but maybe some folks listening haven't heard some of our conversations. Let's go back to the beginning. When the airport was, you know, struggling, quite obviously, there was monies coming from council that would be transferred to the authority to for continued operations. Why wasn't there the fundamental of a request for proposals so that we knew that we were getting in bed or, pardon me, making a sale to someone who's well-financed, can follow through on plans, get value for money? So why wasn't there an RFP? 
Well, really not my stay on that one from the structure of the Seymour Airport Corporation. Uh, uh, it wasn't a town decision because the town didn't own the airport. So basically, the airport is owned by the Stephen Mill Airport Corporation at the time. It's now owned by the Stephen Mill uh, uh, Diamond Group of companies, uh, the Stephen Mill Diamond International Airport. But the, the divestiture agreement that happened in 1998, uh, the airport didn't go to the town of Stephen Mill because under the Municipal Act, we weren't allowed to own it. It went to a non-share uh, group that was actually formed by the Stephenville Town Council back in 1989, knowing that the vestiture was happening. It took from 1989 to 1998, but actually it wasn't in the uh, responsibility of the town of Stephenville. Uh, they had an interest. Uh, they followed through with it, and the terms of the agreement uh, were met by uh lawyers from both sides of the equation and the rest is history so the town given the fact that there was repeatedly transfers of town monies to the operations at the authority no authority or auspices for the town to play a role in how and where that airports get sold no and and here's something that we've heard you know people saying oh we sold the airport well you know an airport and a port facility, they're, they're regarded as sustainable pieces of infrastructure in a sense. You know, they're not going anywhere. It was built by the U.S. Air Force Base, by the U.S. Treasury. Then it was uh, run by Transport Canada. Then the government got out of running airports, and then it got run to a private community group that had no capital, no ability. They were in bankruptcy protection. The town was underwriting the operation in the tune of millions of dollars over the, you know, the 20 years they sat there. Uh, the airport had no commercial ster- service, uh, unable to raise capital. We, we kept it going. Thank God we did. But now it's in private hands with private capital. It's got a new future. And, and Stephenville now has become a global asset because of the investment of world energy, international partners. Uh, Stephenville's got a great future. It remains to be seen what's going to actually happen with the airport because, look, we've invited Carl Diamond on, so many of these questions will be for him and his group. But the promises were enormous. You know, thousands of jobs, a couple hundred million dollars of investment, building the drones, commercial air travel, uh, all the upgrades that were promised. People, I think, are... I think justifiably skeptical about some of this because even the monies that he was able to raise to clear off the uh, outstanding liabilities, they came from a guy who won the lotto. You know, not necessarily traditional lenders and, you know, the ability to borrow all the money to follow through on the promises. Are you still bullish? Because there hasn't been any activity. Any of the things that have been promised have not come to pass beyond the actual purchase, which was at a very small amount of money. And yes, he cleared off some liabilities, but are you still bullish on it? Because, you know, where's the action? Yeah, there's no doubt that if it would have happened earlier and we would have seen bricks and mortar and things happen uh, in an earlier time frame, you know, the skeptics probably would not be there. But remember, in August, uh, he finally took control. It took almost two years, 23 months, because the airport was in bankruptcy protection. He got his investors. I don't, you know, uh, go into where his investors come from. It's really not my concern as the mayor. That's a private company now. But this past weekend, he had eight of the senior business executives in Stephenville all weekend meeting with the town council for updates, community engagement. Uh, he purchased some new equipment uh, for the airport. Uh, they they were required some new trucks, but uh, several new trucks in Stephenville. And uh, he talked about the plans of uh the airport development with a new 
uh, terminal looking at starting in April, you know, planning, execution, design, uh, capital, you know, so much. It takes time. But, you know, I'm just really confident that in the town of Stephenville now, as of August 25th, we were writing off taxes for the town of Stephenville. We were putting money to keep the airport going. Now, that, those days are over. We don't, like, we're about a half a million to three quarters of a million dollars ahead. And that's a lot for a little town like Stephenville with a $10 million budget. So uh, taxes will start now to be paid to the town of Stephenville. We don't have to put any money in it. Uh, all the employees got a $10 an hour raise. Uh, they're getting new equipment at the airport. Uh, he got an executive team. Uh, like, I'm very confident in uh, it's going to happen. It's going to take a little time, but you are 100% absolutely right. Once the people start seeing buildings going up and hangers going up, you know, uh, there's some weight going to come off their shoulders that this is real and this is really good for the town of Stephenville. And I'm very confident that the commercial service will reinstate. Planners usually do this in the month of November into January, but final investment decision coming from World Energy, I hope, after uh, environmental approval happens by the end of this month from our provincial government. This is scaled as the single largest private investment in the history of Atlantic Canada. Our port and airports will hum in the town of Stephenville. How long were you a board member of the Stephenville Airport Authority, and were you a board member at the time of sale? Yes, actually, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think now. I probably sat on the board as an ex-officio for about two years prior to the sale, or just around two years, yeah. So that said, if the town didn't have the authority as you describe or articulate, you did indeed have some influence and an opportunity to voice your concerns or ask the questions as a member of the board who has the, also the double duty of being the mayor of the town. So that will go back to things like RFP. So as the mayor, you don't have a role necessarily, but as a board member, you absolutely do. So when there's the concept now of World Energy GH2, which may revitalize some of the economic opportunities in the region, we'll see now in the next few days whether or not the next green light is offered. So yeah. were you aware that World Energy GH2 was interested in a piece of the property for a lay down yard and the consequential couple of million dollars, I think is the number in revenue annually now flowing to the Diamond Group versus an opportunity for your town where you're the mayor to recover some of the lost revenue, writing off taxes and transfers of monies. So did you know that that deal was in the offing prior to the sale of the airport? 100%. And I'll just kind of go through that with you for clarity, uh, Patty. Uh, so basically, uh, while the airport was still owned by the Stephen Airport Corporation, remember, they had a terms of the sale agreement as of September of 2022. So those terms had to be uh, in place. They had to wait for the legal teams to make it happen, come out of bankruptcy. So that was set. Then all of a sudden, World Energy uh, starts to happen in Stephenville. World Energy needed lay down area, obviously, for this significant project to lay down uh, electrolyzers, wind turbines, nacelles, all the equipment associated with this massive mega project. So they negotiated with the Stephen Airport Corporation, and that was done with the manager and the chairman of the board and the board. Remember, I was ex officio, so I had no voting privileges, but uh, the quote uh, number of you're saying what it meant per year, it, it was, I think, the lease. And I really don't want to get into it in the numbers because that's business to business. And even though I sat there as an ex officio, I had no voting rights 
to vote on that contract. The board did. I, I had to leave the room any time the board voted on something like that. So basically, uh, but the numbers that was reported last week by Mr. Hickey was exasper- exasperated by about 500 percent. I think it, it hovers around $100,000 a month once they start utilizing that space. So it wasn't like $5 million a year. That I think that was what he was quoting. It was just over the, over the top there. Well, we've invited Mr. Diamond down, and I'll ask him those numbers specifically. He'll yeah. share or he won't. But as uh, the mayor and as an ex-officio board member, was there not an opportunity for you in both roles to know that this deal was coming, know the role the town has played in keeping the airport authority up and running, to suggest that the town buy the land that World Energy was going to utilize in an effort to not only have a say and a stance and a role in the place, but also to recover some monies. So why was that not uh, considered and or done? Yeah. Well, I guess a couple of reasons there. First of all, the recovery of our money is now going to come with taxation coming from this, the private airport owned by the Diamond Group of Companies. So that's how council... Councils really should not be involved with, uh, uh, to me, a business that outside of our wheelhouse. So our wheelhouse as councils is to provide, you know, good streets, water, sewer, recreation, getting involved with private sector. To me, you're better off letting the private sector who got the capital. Remember, we're only allowed uh, within the parameters of the municipal act what we can borrow and what we can do. And clearly owning airports wasn't something that was permitted under the municipal act. So when I look at this, uh, could I have played a role to say to the airport board, oh, my God, now that you got uh, potential for revenue coming in, let's say it's a million dollars a year, uh, let's cancel that deal that you have in place now with the Diamond Group. To me, that would have been uh, not a wise decision and could have set up litigation if they didn't have uh, solid reasons to get out the terms of that sale. So I think. Uh, the lawyers from both sides of the team did a wonderful job. I think the airport corporation's decisions that they made was the right decisions for the town and uh, the right decision for my town council. It has been supported by my town council at public meetings in the forms of motions and so forth. So we've done our due diligence. We've been open and transparent. It just so happened that Carl Diamond negotiated an airport that didn't have a lot of revenue potential. And in in the terms of the two-year transaction, something came up that showed that it would produce some additional revenue from uh, non-aerospace or aviation activities or non-commercial airlines. It was lay-down space uh, for a hydrogen wind farm project. So good on him. Good for World Energy, good for the town of Stephen Will and his taxpayers. So the municipal councils and leaders, you know, it's not only about, as you describe, it's also identifying potential revenue streams because simply relying on permits and fees and the antiquated property tax is not the best model of all time. So alternate sources of revenue are also maybe something that municipalities can entertain, and I know they're allowed to entertain uh, by legislation. Last one. So you mentioned taxes. Has the Diamond Group paid any taxes as of yet? Well, in the closing of the sale, they had to pay off all the back taxes on the water and sewer because the Seymour Airport Corporation always paid their water and sewer. So now the uh, deed of conveyance uh, from the lawyers is coming to our tax department. The tax department will now prorate taxes from August 25th 
December 31st, and invoices will be sent to the Diamond Group of Companies, and they'll start paying property and business. But they have been paying the Diamond Group. We've received checks for their water and sewer because there are multiple uh, charges associated with that at the airport. So it's uh, we're in really good shape. And, and, you know, the other thing I just want to mention, Patty, is that because there's so much happening in Stephenville, we own some assets in Stephenville as a municipality. We own some land. And we have RFPs. Actually, one is being awarded uh, or voted on to be awarded on uh, Thursday night. That's tonight at 7 p.m. I'm in St. John's at the Econex and the M&L conference. But uh, we're going to be uh, liquidating some assets. That's going to really help the town of Stephenville get some additional revenue. We're anticipating about $10 million in uh, additional revenue coming into Stephenville to help with our streets and recreation and so forth. And remember, we only have a $10 million budget. So to bring in an extra $10 million over the next 12 months is going to be great for the town of Stephenville. Appreciate the time, Mayor. Okay, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Stephenville Mayor Tom Rose. Take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the NL Prospectors Association. That's Norm Mercer. Good morning, Norm. You're on the air. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Patty. And uh, I apologize. I've got a little bit of a head cold, so I'll I'll do my best to uh, keep my voice clear. I can empathize because I have one as well. Okay, so a news release from your organization yesterday says, Where Act Protected Areas Planned for the Island, a job killer, can we afford it? What are you seeing? What's the impact on your industry? Well, you know, uh, we've, we've raised this a number of times with various governments and officials, and we put out a news release back a few years ago, and that was really prior to the modern-day gold rush that's happening right now, particularly on the island. But we have, uh, we have had in the last uh, four to five years hundreds of millions of dollars spent in prospecting and mineral exploration and mineral discovery, uh, much of it on the island and also certainly Labrador. But specific to the island, we've had over 150,000 mineral claims staked by many prospectors, dozens of juniors representing investors internationally from many of the countries all over the world. And uh, with this Wear Act Protected Areas Plan, all we're saying is that we really need to look at policies of multiple land use. Uh, prospecting, mineral exploration, mining is very re- well regulated today. Uh, you know, uh, projects that move forward to development, they uh, go through a rigorous environmental assessment. And just uh, taking areas and blocking them out uh, for uh, basically single use without allowing for prospecting and mineral exploration is taking away opportunities for significant jobs in the province, particularly in rural areas, and also significant revenues. It's mining, it's oil and gas that provides significant uh, direct mining tax and oil and gas revenues, but these are significant revenues to government, which, uh, you know, at this present time, I mean, we're facing uh, amongst the highest debt we've ever had in the province. We have so many needs and issues. You hear it continuously on your show, uh, you know, every day of every week with regards to uh, the cost of housing, the lack of affordable housing, the need for doctors, now banks closing in a number of regional areas. I mean, we've got to continue to grow the economy 
And all we're saying is that let's work together. And in areas where there needs to be prote- uh, sensitivities protected, well, let's do it. But let's not do it in a way that negates uh, an industry and a sector that is contributing a huge amount of revenues, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of jobs, uh, you know, in this province. And we're still one of the most unexplored areas in uh, in Canada, in fact, in North America. So you mentioned oil and gas. There's no onshore plays regarding that industry. And, of course, we're at their mandate is exactly what they've done here. They compiled recommendations for swaths of land to be protected. Ultimately, this is up to Cabinet, not we're at. They have no authority to do anything. How many of the uh, areas that have been prospected and finds identified yet to be open as commercial uh, mining opportunities, how many of those do you think are compromised by the recommendations made by WERAC? Over half of the areas, over half of the areas presently being proposed in the 10 proposed are, are either completely staked or partially staked and mineral exploration and prospecting activity, I mean you get in there, you get the boots on the ground and you do the work all permitted, all regulated and uh, in areas where there are sensitivities, there are other mitigation factors, but you're talking about uh, a number of areas the particular area right now, the Indian Arm Brook uh, Reserve which is being proposed and that one didn't come through the government plan, the natural areas plan, this is a separate one that's been put forward by members of the public and certain stakeholders all of that is legitimately, just about all of that is legitimately staked and companies and prospectors are doing exploration work on these areas and Patty, the other aspect of it is when we look at uh, success ratios, because for most prospecting and early stage mineral exploration activities, they are very non-intrusive. I mean, they come with a very low, low impact on the uh, on the environment, on the ecology. Uh, prospectors, exploration geologists, many of the miners, I mean, are all very much outdoors people, very sensitive to environmental issues and concerns. I mean, the Marathon Gold Mine at Valentine, where you have now over 600 people working in the construction phase, this will be the largest gold mine in all of Atlantic Canada when it starts production in the first quarter of 2025. But that went through a rigorous environmental and mine permitting process over the last few years, significant engagement with all the various groups indigenous, aboriginal, outfitters, uh, you name it. And, uh, I mean, you know, they you not only have to develop your mining plan, but you also have to put in place securities and bonds and also a reclamation plan. So, you know, that's one. There's been a huge discovery, a rich gold discovery near Appleton, near the Trans-Canada Highway, uh, just west of, uh, west of Gander, east of Appleton, where uh, probably Canada's one of Canada's most uh, significant gold discoveries in decades has been made over the past few years, and communities, businesses, uh, you know, are uh, are benefiting. The government is benefiting with significant revenues. All we're saying is, government adopt a multiple land use policy. We've met. Over the last few years, we've met with different environment ministers. We haven't met directly with this present Minister of Environment. We've met a number of times with Minister Parsons, with, who has uh, mines under his uh, portfolio. And, and so we get mixed messages. On the one side from Minister Parsons, who I respect, uh, he says that there should not be single-use allocation. 
uh, when we talk to the ministers in uh, in environment and climate change, they say, well, look, it's legislated and it's government policy to move forward with a natural areas plan. We would like to hear from the premier and all of the political leaders in terms of where they where they stand on these issues. We're a population of a half a million people over a vast landscape which has so much potential, which has been shown to be true over the last 30 to 40 years as governments broke the, the old concession system where most of our mineral rights were tied up by a handful of companies and individuals. And we started training prospectors, providing small incentive grants back in the late 80s, early 90s. And let's look at what's come. We've had like Voices Bay. We've had the uh, We've had the gold discoveries at Valentine. We have the gold at Hope Brook and at Cape Ray and up at Kings Point. We have this rich gold discovery near Appleton, which has set off a staking rush and hundreds of millions of dollars in exploration. The Indian Iron Brook is an area just west of that. And as they're doing more and more work, they're seeing that not only do you see these uh, deep crustal faults, which bring the gold-bearing solutions, but also splay faults, which come off of it, which also have great promise. <laughs> so, and then uh, Fashu Bay, or Fushi Bay, that's another one. Like, there's a, there's a, whole, a whole range of them. Fair enough. I mean, it's a long time to have uh, the Minister of the Environment and Minister Parsons back on the show to talk about this and a multitude of issues. We just wanted to touch base with you today, Norm, to get uh, some elaboration on your position regarding these suggested protective lands, of which are minimal percentage of the actual footprint of the province, but of course would have implications for a variety of industries, certainly including mining, which is, we're, if we don't see a mining boom soon, I'll be shocked because even if we simply talk about critical minerals and the thirst for them internationally, there are big things ahead here. Uh, I appreciate the update this morning, Norm. Thanks for the time. Yes, and P uh, uh, Patty, just to finish off, uh, we've, ha we've had over the last several years the first recorded significant discovery of lithium-bearing pegmatites by two of the junior companies. And just to show the kind of promise and rare earths which we have in southeast Labrador, in western Newfoundland, and other areas, but Piedmont Lithium, one of the largest United States uh, lithium companies, has just entered into a joint venture to buy into this project north of Burgio. Areas that are, are dying when it comes to uh, rural areas of the, of the province that uh, have such potential, and the list goes on and on. So with the critical minerals push, with the new plan for uh, a strategic uh, critical mineral strategy, which I'm sure the province will roll out very, uh, very soon, it makes no sense to us to uh, have cross purposes where we can all work together and address any sensitivities. We're not against the, we're not against those small ecological reserves protecting a particular plant or a flower or birds or animals. But in terms of these larger areas, mm -hmm. uh, we think it's a wrong decision. But thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Norm. Appreciate it. All the best to you, sir. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Norm Mercer, the president of the NL Prospector Association. Let's take a break. When we come back, Barry wants to respond to Brian. I think that was comments regarding immigration. Marilyn Rose in the queue. She's part of the Port of Port Environmental Transparency Committee. And Connie Pike from Miles for Smiles, them and you after this. Don't go away. 
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Connie Pike. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Um, it's a good news week and a good news month for us in Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, we had an announcement uh, from government on Tuesday about the uh, body safety program in schools, kids in the know, and uh, we couldn't be happier. Well, we could actually. We could be happier if it was happening sooner, but we'll uh, we'll take the full implementation for September of 2025. Um, we're a little bit concerned, of course, that in the next two years almost there'll be a lot of children still at risk, but uh, we're hoping in the end that uh, this will see our numbers come down and all the children in the province will be better protected. For sure. I always thought this was inevitable that the department would say, okay, you're right, because this has been test-driven, age-appropriate, proven to be helpful. So, you know, gone from the pilot project now, every student in K-9 schools across the province will indeed have this body safety program. Kids in the know, it just makes sense, and I'm glad they did it. And I always thought this was going to be the case. Well, we we were hoping that, and uh, I think uh, government is really serious about this. They put an implementation committee uh, in place. Uh, Bev will be sitting on that committee and their work started the day after the announcement, so less than 24 hours. So we're happy about that. And I do want to give a shout out to Bev and her partner in all things Tom. Uh, they've really spearheaded the efforts here, particularly Bev. And uh, Joe Bolin was on the initial committee for this and Malin Enstrom from uh, Iris Kirby House, she's the ED there. And, of course, our illustrious Dr. Sandra Luscombe, who is just a wealth of knowledge, and we were very fortunate to have her. Um, another couple of people I'd like to thank, and uh, I did this yesterday as well. Uh, I gave a shout-out to you on Adam Walsh's show, The Signal, on CBC, and uh, now I'm going to give a shout-out again to you and to Adam because... Um, in the media, you two were the rock stars in terms of emerge support for us. Uh, you know, we wrote many letters. We uh, lobbied government nonstop. Uh, the premier was really in our corner from the beginning. Uh, we heard from a few MHAs, uh, Tony Stack of the uh, NLESD, but yourself and Adam really uh, helped us out in terms of getting the word out, and we really appreciate that. Well, we're happy to do it. You know, for things that are just so critically important, we'd be betraying the show and the general public if we weren't talking about these matters, and we're happy to do it. And, you know, taking Bev's calls or your calls or Tom's or anyone else's, and Dr. Dr. Luscombe's actually a friend of mine, so I'm glad this worked out the way it did. Connie, before we run out of time, would you like to uh, say anything else this morning? Well, again, just our appreciation goes out to all, and uh, this was done for all the children in the province. That was always our priority. It was our quest. It's still our mission, and we will keep lobbying for their safety, and uh, that's what we do. Um, the other thing I would like to mention briefly is tomorrow is Go Blue Day 
in the province, and we would really, really appreciate it if people wanted to show their support in any way or to thank Miles for Smiles for, you know, pursuing this particular initiative and many others. Uh, if you would wear blue tomorrow to support us and name it, say why you're wearing blue, and then maybe take a picture uh, of your office group or individually or whatever you wish and send it along on the Miles for Smiles page to help us publicize even further. We would really appreciate people helping us spread the word that way. And we appreciate your time this morning, Connie. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. It's Connie Pike from Miles for Smiles. Final break of the morning. But Marilyn, you're right there in the queue to talk about what I assume is World Energy GH2's proposal for the Port of Port Peninsula. And Larry wants to talk immigration in response to Brian. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Larry, you're on the air. Larry on line number one. Larry? Larry took a break from the phone and put Larry on hold. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Marilyn Rowe with the Port of Port Environmental Transparency Committee. Good morning, Marilyn. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, good. Thank you. Um, we are on the road, on the highway going to St. John's, uh, the Environmental Transparency Committee, and members of the Port of Port Peninsula, including fisher people, um, the people from Codroy Valley, FFAW, um, all our allies will be in St. John's tomorrow, tomorrow morning, for a rally at Confederation Building at 11 a.m. And uh, we are going down to, you know, bring more awareness to this project that, you know, it's going to be announced on October 31st, ironically on Halloween, pretty scary for the people in the, on the southwest coast. Um, as you notice, it's a massive undertaking. Um, there's a lot of unknowns. The project has shifted and changed so much from its original proposal uh, that it's left us reeling. Um, you know, we couldn't even, I didn't, couldn't even get like a hard copy of the EIS to go through it. Uh, but, the, you know, the parts that I was able to obtain uh, is it, just beyond comprehension, the size and scope and the uh, threats to the environment that this project will be on our backs. Because when you're talking about 656-foot wind turbines on mountaintops, these are monsters, and it's going to be in our backyard. And to have 164 of them on the Port of Port Peninsula, a small area that already has a large mining operation, uh, CMEX Materials, which is right next door to us and partially in our community, uh, we're going to be hit from both sides and the back because we've got the mining operation on the left side and then we're going to have the turbines on the right. And, you know, the Port of Port Peninsula is like a pedestal. Uh, so with all this blasting, uh, I mean, the, the fear in the people that, you know, are aware of what's to come uh, is very scary. And like I said, to have the, 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 the decision made on Halloween is, is even scarier because, um, you know, the unknowns in, in this industry is a new industry for North America. This is the biggest project in North America. It's never been done before. Um, and uh, it's a new company. I mean, World Energy was just uh, formed uh, last year, and so, I mean, this, this is scary. Yeah, the wind issue and the 
imposition or the presence of the two phases of 164 wind turbines, that's not new, but it is representing about 40% of the geography on the Port of Port Peninsula, which is not insignificant. The new part is the, the electrolysis ammonia and export of uh, green hydrogen. So bringing the protests across the province today, is there something that you don't think people know about the project? Because it's been talked about pretty extensively. We've tried to cover it as best we can. Questions asked very directly of Mr. Risley and other proponents of the industry, even though it is in its infancy, and there's a lot we don't know about how it's going to work long-term and how viable it will be long-term. But is there anything in particular you think people don't know? Well, you know, Patty, the company has not consulted with the, the fisher people on the Port of Port Peninsula or the southwest coast. Um, so the FFAW will be there, and um, there has to be proper consultation. The minister should pause on this proposal and look at, you know, what the cumulative effects will be on the whole area. And uh, right now, I mean, the the uh, company has refused to meet with the FFAW members, just like they refused to meet with people on the Port of Port Peninsula. I've invited the company and I gave them lots of notice to come out and talk with the people. But no, they want to have it in small groups, you know, and, and, and it's like a divide and conquer sort of scenario. Uh, if, if it's, this is going to happen, there should be a public review, an assessment board set up by the minister so that we can have the funds and the expertise available to us so we can bring in our own experts that is, you know, separate from the government and from this company. Because, you know, the relationship between the company and the government is very close and it has been from day one. You know, we have a tip information that states that they were in talks for two years now and we had no idea this was going on so but now a lot of, yeah, that ahead. could have only been triggered by a federal assessment under the impact agency of canada so at this point are you suggesting that the province mimic their process with allowing for independent review with allowing for monies for uh, intervener status and experts associated with it is that what you're saying yes there the minister can uh, appoint an assessment board to do public review of this project, and it should be done. This is the this is unprecedented. It's never happened in North America before. Like I said, these are offshore industrial turbines, Patty. They have not been put on land before, and we're going to be the guinea pigs. So if we're going to be the sacrificial lamb on the Port of Port Peninsula and on the southwest coast, because Codroy Valley is getting lots of them too, and we learned yesterday they're going to be putting them in Kippins on Island Pond Road. They're going to be on Pine Tree Hill. They're going to be everywhere. So... And it's not just us that's going to be affected. If they're tapping into our grid, this is going to affect all Newfoundlanders. And Newfoundlanders and Labradorians should be concerned about this project because it will affect everybody. So we're asking people to come out and talk to us tomorrow. We're going to be at the Confederation Building. Come out and meet with us, have a chat. We, we have information. And we've sent in thousands of letters as part of the EIS submission um, guidelines and so there's lots of opposition to this proposal and to this project and you know this company needs a social license they need to have the the people's consent and approval the government cannot be overriding the people of newfoundland and labrador constantly we've gone down this road with muskrat falls we've gone down this road with churchill falls and now they're getting ready to go down this road again with world energy gh2 i appreciate the time marilyn thanks for this
Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. You too. Bye. Marilyn Rowe with the Port of Port Environmental Transparency Committee. Last word goes to line one. Larry, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I, uh, I just wanted to uh, cash in on Brian's uh, conversation he had with you uh, concerning immigration. Um, uh, I'd like to give an example of uh, where uh, like the, he keeps talking about uh, all these people got good spots they're living and all this, you know. But uh, last fall, I had a, a doctor's appointment in St. John's, and we have uh, stayed at the uh, Extend the Care Place. Okay. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I don't know, I guess you're aware of that. I mean, it's, it's set up, I think, mainly for, for well, anybody, I guess, that got to travel. And instead of having to go traveling back and forth, you could stay there. And the rates were really low. Actually, we paid uh, $40 for the night, and, or $45, I'm sorry. And uh, basically, I mean, we had a, a, an ideal hotel room. And there's transportation there to take you to the hospital if you need it. And but while we were there that weekend, I mean, the, the place was uh, was just a crawling with uh, foreigners, which I was pretty sure who they were. And uh, for just, just three months after that, I had to go back in again. And my wife called in to make uh, reservations to have to extend the care place. And uh, if we were able to. If we were ever to get a room there, it was going to be expensive, and uh, and and there's, but there was no space. And um, but I mean, all of those people are there. That everything filled up. Well, they need access to lodgings and healthcare like everybody else, though, right? Sure, but I mean, these are people that's taking space that is, was provided for us for the people of Newfoundland and all of a sudden uh, you, you don't get nowhere there you can't get a space there no more yeah you but I guess uh, uh, fair enough I mean the, the complications associated with immigration are real uh, but of course if they sit down roots and live and work or go to school or whatever here in the province at some point we're going to have to consider them people from the province as well right Oh, sure, yeah. at that time. But, I mean, in the meantime, we've got so many people where in Newfoundland that got nowhere to live, only in a tent. You know, I mean, I think uh, I think all that stuff could start at home first and take care of that stuff. Fair but enough. I'm not, I'm not against giving. And uh, and immigration, I wish we had some to come here on change homes and sure, that sure would help us out here. You know, as of now, we're, we're lo- our services there are getting constantly worse. Ferry service is is just too bad to talk about. And we're the change homes people are the ones who ends up taking the most of the blunt from it because Fogo is much larger than us, and they got more voice and right. And, uh, you know, and <laughs> just because of the time on the clock, Larry, we just cleared twelve o'clock. But you're welcome to come back another day if you're so inclined. How's that? Okay, good enough. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. All right, uh, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.